The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fame is a fickle food. Poet Emily Dickinson once wrote that in the mid-19th century. Maybe around the same time Levi Boone Helm was roaming the American Wild West. True then and true now. Fame is fleeting. It often never comes at all. Not always or even often based on any logical or rational criteria. Why one person is famous and another is not, often confusing. I'm sure you follow a band, a comic, author, actor, even a podcast, and wonder, why is so-and-so not famous? Or, or why is so-and-so not more famous? Maybe you think their music is clearly so much better than some other artist who is uh, much more well-known. I get it. I do the same thing. When I first read a summary of the life and crimes of Levi Boone Helm, I immediately wondered why he wasn't much more well-known. Why he isn't today much more well-known. I love stories of the Wild West. Thought I was pretty familiar with the major names, outlaws, and gunslingers. But I only heard about Helm because our Patreon supporters, our beloved space lizards, they voted this topic up in the Time Suck app so we'd research him and I'd do this episode today. And I'm glad they did. If you like Wild West tales or true crime, especially if you like both, you're gonna be glad they sent this maniac our way. Uh, long before Time Suck, I was definitely familiar with the stories of Wild West outlaws like Billy the Kid, Jesse James and Doc Holliday. So why not Helm, the Kentucky cannibal? Was his story just not as bloody or interesting? His story is actually more bloody. The men I just mentioned were hard men not to be trifled with, but when you look a little deeper into the annals of the Wild West, there were other often harder, more dangerous men, men more murderous at the very least. But that fickle mistress of fame just didn't grab a hold of their stories the same way she'd grab a hold of the lesser tales of other outlaws. Some outlaws just didn't meet the right newspaper editor, tall tales author, Billy the Kid claimed 21 murders, but the real total was likely nine. While there are rumors of many more, only two confirmed kills can be attributed to Doc Holliday. Tall tales around Wild Bill ran his kill count to over 100 men, but contemporary chroniclers claim the real number was likely six or seven. Levi Boone Helm confessed to sending 18 men to their graves and to eating at least two of them. He may have killed and eaten a lot more than that. He was active for a long time, for around 14 years. 
but he never gained a level of notoriety quite like the others. Why not? Perhaps because we tend to like our outlaws to be uh, more than bloody. We want them to be witty, handsome, charming. Uh, Levi was none of those things. He was mean, hateable, ugly inside and out. He was a brute. He didn't seem to exactly endear himself to uh, any biographers, to anyone, really. Didn't, didn't make friends with any Wild West authors. Being in the right place at the right time helps a lot with fame, and Boone didn't benefit there either. His uh, crimes happened a bit before America truly became obsessed with Wild West lawmen and quick draws and other outlaws. He was hanged before the Civil War ended, and he committed his dastardly deeds up in Montana and Idaho, not down in the more popular Wild West towns of like Dodge City, Kansas, or Tombstone, Arizona, where numerous infamous outlaws congregated along with famous lawmen in cities that were wild, but not as wild as parts of Idaho and Montana. Maybe most Wild West authors who built men's legends felt relatively safer in Dodge City or Tombstone than they did in the wilder confines of rougher boom towns like Florence, Idaho or Virginia City, Montana. So who was Levi Boonhelm? Most commonly just referred to as Boonhelm. Prolific biographical Wild West author Emerson Ho wrote in his book, the only uh, West Wild West book uh, written about Boone, I'm sorry, one of uh, just a few, titled Levi Boonhelm, Murderer, Cannibal, and Thief, and published in 1907, Boonhelm was bad and nothing in the world could ever have made him anything but bad. He was by birth and breeding, low, coarse, cruel, animal-like, and utterly depraved, and for him no name but ruffian can fittingly apply. Man known as the Kentucky Cannibal was an outlaw and murderer who terrorized many in mining towns across the West. He was, as another source described, a gutsy outlaw who refused to take no for an answer. This dude put the wild in West. Born in Kentucky, he made his way West in the early 20s, or in his early 20s, excuse me, after his wife divorced him, after he murdered his cousin for essentially just not wanting to go West with him. Boone proceeded to commit crime after crime for the remainder of his, of his adult life. Robberies, murders, horse thievery, and, of course, a bit of cannibalism. Why? Because he preferred uh, cannibalism to going hungry. Because he didn't seem to give a rat's ass what other people thought about his actions. And maybe, probably because he was a bit crazy. He for sure marched to the beat of his own drum. When Boone reached the relatively lawless Montana territory, he joined up with a gang of men who called themselves the Innocents. They were anything but. They were ruthless road agents who harassed, robbed, and murdered miners and merchants in the gold rush boom towns of Bannock and Virginia City, Montana, the Innocents were led by Bannock Town Sheriff, the outlaw Henry Plummer, maybe. Plummer's story is complicated. We'll meet him today, too. To picture the Innocents, think the bad guys, the cowboys, from arguably the greatest movie of all time, 1993's Tombstone with Val Kilmer, Kurt Russell, Sam Elliott, so many other great names. Why, Johnny Ringo, you look like someone just walked over your grave. Johnny Ringo would have fit in well with the Innocents. Boone sure did. Bunch of men just like him, excluding the cannibalism for the most part. Uh, that was his own thing. With his crew, Boone, or excuse me, Helm, spent his final years terrorizing innocent people and causing as much chaos as possible. An old West sociopath, Boone cared only about pleasing himself, drinking, sex, fighting, murdering innocent people for their gold. Joining the innocents allowed him to share his favorite pastimes with like-minded men. Boone's days in this gang ended when a group of men called themselves the Vigilance Committee. A vigilante mob decided they were fed up with the innocents, terrorizing their towns. This now, Mr. Kansas Law Dog. Law don't go around here, savvy. Another tombstone quote. Going to be several today. Uh, the Vigilance Committee joined together with one mission, identify, capture, and execute all road agents. And yet again, I think a tombstone. One of, one of Kurt Russell, Wyatt Earp's best scenes. All right, Clanton, you called down the thunder. Well, now you've got it. The Cowboys are finished. You understand me? You tell them I'm coming. 
and hell's coming with me. That's a great movie. The Vigilance Committee would bring hell down on over 20 men. Their actions would set the stage for future Western vigilante movements. An example to other towns that they could make a stand against outlaws and take justice into their own hands in towns and areas where the halls of justice just hadn't been built yet. These vigilantes would bring Boone's life, his violent life, to an equally violent end. On January 14th, 1864, when he and his fellow road agents were hanged in the middle of town for roughly 6,000 witnesses to see. Helm's story is a rough and rugged one, and I look forward to telling it to you today in another Wild West <laughs> outlaw true crime edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, the suck master, blind school recess judo referee. An island boy just trying to make it. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles and Triple M. I don't know what's going on with those island boys. Uh, happy belated Veterans Day. I know it was last week. Recorded this episode on Veterans Day, though. Uh, truly, though, huge thank you to all the veterans out there. Active duty, reserve duty, those who have served in any capacity. I appreciate the hell out of the freedom I have. And, uh, you know, with no military, freedom historically sure doesn't seem to last. Right? Freedom is not free. Our charity this month is, of course, veteran-focused IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, dedicated to serving and empowering the post-9-11 veterans community. For more info, you can go to IAVA.org. Also, happy birthday to my wife, Lindsay. Her birthday also on Veterans Day. She just turned 18. So we can finally have sex. Hey, Lucifina. Ah, JK. She's 19 or maybe 29 or maybe a couple years older than that. Maybe I'm 18. Hmm. Man, if I'm 18, uh, I'm looking like I've lived a, uh, I lived a hard ass 18 years. Uh, hoping I had fun at the Angel of the Winds Casino in Arlington, just north of Seattle, uh, this past weekend show there, uh, just, uh, this past, this past Friday night on the, on the 12th. And then it's off to Denver, Loveland, Tampa, Tacoma to close out the rest of the year for the Symphony of Insanity stand-up tour. Tickets on sale now for spring 2022 Symphony of Insanity dates. San Diego, Los Angeles, Austin, Orlando, Oklahoma City, Atlanta, Charlotte, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, Davenport, Iowa, Chicago, Raleigh, and Missoula, Montana. Yes, I'll be at the Wilma on April 23rd. A long time since I did a show in Montana. I'm excited. It's a really cool venue. Uh, Links to tickets at dancummins.tv. You can also buy Symphony of Insanity tour shirts at badmagicmerch.com. Uh, also, just in the store now, a history-inspired design. Our art warlock is calling Dan the Great, the Royal Expedition T and Poster. Looking like Napoleon, I've mounted Nimrod's unicorn of knowledge for a long and noble quest for truth and dick jokes. Uh, maybe that poster will one day hang in a museum or on a dive bar bathroom stall door. Uh, hopefully back up on YouTube this week, our channel got flagged for cyberbullying last week. Uh, apparently a bunch of people uh, complained about the old Pizzagate episode. Flag that one of all things. <laughs> uh, the comment section there is, uh, Joe tells me it's anarchy. I guess telling people that uh, they're idiots for believing in something really idiotic is now cyberbullying. So that's that's cool. Maybe now uh, part of wokeism is not being able to shit on anyone's beliefs of any kind. That seems pretty terrible. But maybe uh, maybe I just think it's terrible because I'm old and out of touch. And I need, I need to be, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, have my brain realigned or something. I don't know. Uh, let's see if I can get this episode flagged too. If it's not okay to say a mass murdering outlaw was stupid, well, I'll be, in, I'll be in trouble again. Now let's get wild. Let's play for blood. Say when. Right now. 
set the stage for today's tall tale, I'm going to first give a brief overview of the first gold rushes of the 19th century West and discuss how a bunch of old mining towns became breeding grounds for crime and murder, perfect places for men like Boone Helm, the Kentucky cannibal, to hide in plain sight. Places, to quote tombstones, Ike Clanton again, I won't be quoting them all this often for the show, but uh, where a lot don't go around here. We met the real Ike and uh, Doc Holliday suck, by the way. He'd be part of the next generation of outlaws, the uh, the historical Ike. Elm, Helm's exploits occurred about 20 years full before old Ike Clanton's. Oh, Helm was a Wild West OG. We'll discuss when the West was wild, what exactly made it wild, a lack of law enforcement, and so many quickly thrown together gold towns. Towns that quickly became full of outlaws, often called road agents. I use that term going forward. A road agent was a term for a bandit or a highwayman back in the Wild West, particularly along, along stagecoach routes. People hide in the bushes waiting to hijack a stagecoach. Uh, while covering these towns, we'll also briefly meet some of the Wild West's other outlaws, Helm's contemporaries, more or less. Find out who Wild West uh, tale tellers were comparing him to. And then finally, we'll cover the life of Boone Helm, the Kentucky cannibal, from its beginnings in rural Kentucky to its end in the western frontier city of uh, Virginia City. Montana. So why did Boone Helm, cannibal and killer, want to head out west in the first place? Because gold is it's gold in them there hills. Uh, but really was uh, to make his fortune in gold. At least that's what he said. He ended up making his money in crime, though. Doing actual mining was not for him. With the skill set he had, it was easier to let somebody else mine the gold and then, you know, just uh, just take it from him. Miners largely came out west via the Oregon Trail. Not going to go over details of that journey since we just sucked it uh, a few weeks back. The Oregon Trail was that 2,000-mile-ish you know, wagon route that took American immigrants from Missouri to the Western Territories. Roughly 250,000 to 500,000 Americans made the journey west, and a lot of them were single men hoping to strike it rich in one of the West's new gold rushes. In January of 1848, James Wilson Marshall, a carpenter, found gold nuggets in Sacramento Valley. This is considered one of the most significant events in U.S. history in the first half of the 19th century when the news spread thousands of prospective miners were immediately traveling to San Francisco and the surrounding area, hoping to get rich, hoping to make their fortunes. And many of them did. Uh, because I don't think I mentioned before, this discovery skyrocketed poor James Marshall to fame, but sadly, oh, not to fortune. Not at all. This guy's life story is ridiculous. It's ridiculously sad. I find it, I'm only laughing because it's not me. Marshall, and it happened a long time ago, Marshall didn't own the land he found these gold nuggets on. John Sutter did, so he didn't get to keep his initial nuggets. Marshall's job was to build a sawmill, and he did that job. And then his job was to run that sawmill. And by all accounts, he did that job very well. But once word got out about the gold that he found, no one wanted to work for him at the fucking sawmill. He doomed himself with that discovery. Not that someone else wouldn't have uh, found it soon, uh, soon after anyway, but his discovery left him unable to keep anybody employed. Like all his workers just left to go make their fortunes. And uh, so many prospectors wanted to gather up all the gold where his sawmill was that he ended up losing his job and got let go. The cruel irony, finding that nugget, those nuggets cost him his job. Then the area around him so quickly got saturated with prospectors, he decided instead of prospecting himself to open up a vineyard. And he lost his ass. A bunch of others also decided around the same time to open up vineyards and the competition was too much and he goes bankrupt. Now he tries prospecting and he becomes partner in a gold mine, but he's too late and his mining claim sucks. It yields nothing, nada. It's a big old bust. Years later here and he's now destitute, the California government essentially feels sorry for him, takes pity on him, gives him a pension for his role in kicking off the settlement of the state and his pension begins in 1872 
Then the state gets into financial trouble and they drop his pension in 1878 and never renew it. Penniless again, he ends up living the last seven years of his life alone in poverty in a shitty one-room cabin that looks like someone's tool shed uh, before dying at the age of 74 in 1885. Ain't that a bitch? Poor bastard. Imagine being the dude who kicked off the biggest gold rush in U.S. history. And then while watching hundreds, thousands around you become millionaires, you don't make shit. You struggle and struggle and struggle some more. His story is so sad. Never expected the dude who found the gold that kicked off the California gold rush to be such an unlucky son of a bitch. And he was unlucky before all that. Let me quickly finish here on the rest of his story. I just find it so ridiculous. One of the unluckiest men of his generation grew up in New Jersey, then headed west as a young adult and was apparently immediately cursed. Must have insulted some old Eastern European mystic with milky eyes or something. Pretty sure that's how it happens. He got himself a little farm in Missouri, started growing crops, and then promptly contracted malaria. He got really sick. The doctor said he should head west for his health, so he does. And he ends up, you know, getting himself, uh, you know, a farm at Sutter's Fort, present-day Sacramento, California, where he'd find those nuggets later. And he gets a farm with a lot of cattle on it. Works really hard to acquire these cattle. And then right when things are starting to look good uh, on his, you know, cattle ranch slash farm, the Mexican-American War breaks out, and he goes to fight for the U.S., so he leaves to fight. When he returns from helping secure California for America, he finds out that literally all of his cattle have been stolen or wandered off. Every last one of them. And he loses his farm ranch. And that's when he goes to work at Sutter's Mill. And he just keeps getting bent over and fucked, you know, by life for the rest of his days. I bet that cabin shed he spent his final years in was not one of the cheeriest of places. Sitting in there alone, ruminating, reflecting on nothing ever going right. Hey, James, uh, want to get out of this shed? I mean, I mean, cabin and uh, I don't know, maybe go for a walk. Why? So I can get struck by lightning. So someone can sneak in here and steal my bed. No, thank you. All right, James. Well, uh, how would you let me cook you up some uh, lunch then or something? You just, you don't look well. Why? So you can poison me? Is that your game? You want to take my lucky pair of boots, don't you? It's all I have left. Well, not today. Don't come around here at night neither. I sleep in these boots. Uh, after poor cursed Marshall's discovery in 1848, California miners would proceed to extract $10 million in 1849, $41, $41 million in 19, uh, excuse me, uh, 41, between 41 and two, uh, Jesus Christ, $41 million in 1850, which is $971 million in 2005 dollars. Wrote that in my notes in a weird way and couldn't figure out what I was saying. $75 million in 1851 and $81 million in 1852. And then after that, the yield gradually declined. Uh, $2 billion worth of precious metal would be taken out of the area overall. California gold rush hit hard, but didn't last long. After those first few years, miners began to travel north, east uh, to look for new gold deposits. Gold was found in Southern Oregon in 1852 in the Rogue River drainage. And in 1854 on the Sanium River, uh, it was found east of the Cascades on the John Day River. Uh, miners, shopkeepers, farmers, teamsters, Others would all follow the gold, you know, set up these little quick uh, little camps. A few miners continued further north, reporting gold in Washington, southern British Columbia, uh, especially along the Fraser River from 1858 into the early 1860s. The Hudson's Bay Company, a British fur trading company, found gold along the Columbia River in 1852 and tried to keep it a secret. Did for a few years, but by 1855, word got out. Groups of miners traveled across the Yakima Reservation to reach Fort Colville in present-day Washington State. Made local tribes angry because it violated a land treaty. U.S. Army did then close eastern Washington to further settlement for a time in 1856, except for miners. 
they were allowed to keep coming in. So gosh dang. Uh, gold was first found in what is now the state of Montana by miner Francois Finley in 1852. He'd gone to California to try his luck, but not making the fortune he'd hoped for. He soon moved on to fur trading in Montana. On a whim, decided to look in the streams there for gold one day. And to his apparent surprise, he found gold, sweet, shiny gold. He kept his discovery to himself for five years. Had a real good run. But then some miners returning from California in 1857 got word of his discovery, decided to go to the creek to prospect all winter. Wish I knew how much old gold old Francois smuggled out of that area. Can't find a source that says. By the early 1860s, the discovery of gold in Idaho also lured settlers and California miners into the Snake River Valley. Cities like Elk City and Lewiston are now spring up around gold deposits. We covered this a little bit in the Ward motherfucking hall suck. Hail Pop Ward. Uh, the Eastern Oregon, Central Idaho gold rush lasted from around 1861 to 1870. 1861, about 10,500 men came up to the Columbia River to try their luck. 1863, 22,000 men. 1864, 36,000. So many men came to try their hand at mining because they, they could do placer mining instead of hard rock mining when these gold strikes would initially hit. Placer mining involves separating eroded minerals from sand or gravel. Sift in that sediment. No explosives needed. Just a prospector's pan in its most basic, simplest form. And a mining pan was pretty damn economically accessible to almost any American. And, you know, uh, getting a tiny bit more complicated. You know, you can build these little sifters that are just uh, some wood and some wire. Uh, this is how the how the mining was done at the start of virtually all the big Western gold rushes. When placer mining stopped yielding riches in California, many of those pioneers who weren't interested in advancing their techniques, getting explosives, digging tunnels, all that, uh, they took their simple gear and moved it to Oregon to look for nuggets there. By, 1860, by 1864, there were 10 major mining districts in the Washington Territory, which included the modern boundaries of Western Idaho and Western Montana. Uh, Fort Walla Walla and the Dalles became focal points for trade between miners. Between 1860 and 1890, placer mines and the Clearwater and Salmon River drainages yielded 30 to 60 million in gold. A lot of these early mining camps became towns that then sometimes became cities. And these boom towns, they grew fast, real fast. And the combination of a relatively large population based solely around building wealth in a territory that had either no or not enough local lawmen made these mining camps the perfect places for robbers and murderers to target innocent people. Miners and business owners were popular targets for highwaymen, uh, of course, because they, you know, they had money. Because those those roadmen coming to get them. When the towns first kicked off, they weren't holding it in the bank because there was no banks. Wild ass times, truly rugged. Uh, take Virginia City, Montana, one of the mining camps Helm would terrorize the most. Gold was discovered in the area at the end of May 1863. Three weeks later, a township was being established a mile south of a new mining district. Several weeks later, thousands of miners were in the area. Within a few months, there was an estimated 5,000 people and over 10,000 within a year. And there were literally no courts or law enforcement officers anywhere nearby. Nothing within a several days ride. When it first boomed, there were thousands of people, no bank, no jail, just saloons and brothels quickly thrown together, sometimes in literal tents to begin with. These towns, when they first got going, looked more like uh, big campsites where a lot of people showed up to fucking party. Uh, and when the, you know, gold was gone, it looked more like that than a town. When the gold was gone, or at least when most of the easily accessible gold was gone, you know, so was the town. On to the next big strike. Today, Virginia City only has about 200 people. By 1880, just 17 years after booming, it was already down from over 10,000 to around 600 people. And there were so many others similar there one day, largely or totally gone the next towns. Towns with no law enforcement or almost none. 
If you were a saloon keeper, your sheriff was the double-barreled shotgun you kept under the bar. The American West, largely a lawless land for many years. Although Western films, you know, tend to exaggerate. Showbiz, that's how they do it in Hollywood. There are some accuracies in their portrayals of wild Western society. The lawlessness uh, made legal sense because most of the land out West was territories and not states when all this was going on. You know, they were not uh, subject to federal regulation or only subject to limited federal regulation. You know, it was changing all the time. It was kind of fluid. Uh, U.S. Marshals would roam the Western territories, but not in great numbers. U.S. territories today are subject to U.S. federal law, but that wasn't always the case. Also, even when there were laws, it wasn't always the, you know, the bodies to enforce them. You can have all the laws you want in a society, but if you don't have enough law enforcement officers willing and or capable, you know, properly armed to enforce these laws, well, then the laws aren't worth, you know, much more than the paper they're printed on. Uh, Some territorial areas had no form of government at all at times. For example, an act of Congress in 1864 gave Montana a territorial government consisting of three territorial Supreme Court judges, a governor and secretary of the territory. But towns were on their own to get law officers. And when Virginia City formed in 1863, when Boone Helm was there, you know, they had nothing official. because It was before that act of Congress. To quote one source about life in the West in the latter half of the 20th century, living in the American West was not easy at that time. There were no laws, no courts, and little or no government. And because of this, it easily lured numerous criminals, some of who were escaping punishment for other crimes, some who wanted to take advantage of its having no laws, and probably a few who wanted to start over. Boone Helm fit the first two conditions and not the third there. Not really. He didn't want to start start over, in a redemptive sense at least. Maybe just in a, uh, well, law officials aren't looking for me here yet. That kind of sense. And, and, what it, and where exactly was the Wild West and how long did this era last? Uh, the Wild West generally considered the area from the Rocky Mountain states to Texas across the West Coast. The stereotypical version of the Wild West that we usually think of lasted roughly from 1850s, from the 1850s to uh, around 1900. You know, the entire area wasn't lawless for that whole time. Sacramento, California would elect their first sheriff at the start of the uh, era in 1850. Joseph McKinney, he'd have a whole bunch of deputies. Things got relatively civilized a little quicker there, thanks to uh, it being where the first big Western strike hit. But it was still plenty wild for a while compared to a lot of East Coast cities and cities on the plains. Idaho got their first sheriff in 1864, John G. Howell. New towns kept popping up throughout the rest of the century, and it took each of them varying amounts of time to acquire their own law enforcement. A fair amount of them, when they did get officials, ended up with uh, corrupt ones. Men who found it easier and safer to make money with outlaws than to continually risk death trying to stop them. They were often outnumbered and outarmed. Settlers in small communities made their own laws and forced them as they saw fit through largely vigilante justice. Lynch mobs quickly thrown together posses. Murders and robberies of innocent people were all too common out West. Murder and physical assault rates were at least 3 to 4% higher in the Western states than in Eastern states, according to some you know, crime statistics, but that's just reported murders and assaults. And uh, I think the real discrepancy was probably much, much higher than that. Hard to report crimes when you don't have any local law enforcement to report them to. Crime was especially common, of course, in the mining towns that were fueling expansion. Not going to spend a lot of time trying to rob a handful of dirt poor homesteaders out in the Willamette Valley when you could find a lot more potential victims with a lot more cash in a boomtown. Western outlaw crimes, in addition to holding someone up for gold, you know, included train robbing, Stagecoach robbing, horse, cattle theft, rape, murder. If local law enforcement actually did catch you for any of these crimes, the penalty was usually getting hanged, right? If the vigilante mob got you, if there was a sheriff, they got you. You know, you either didn't, you, you usually either didn't get in much trouble at all or you got hanged. There wasn't a lot of middle ground. <laughs> Just like it took a while for a lot of these places, you know, 
to, to get like a sheriff. It also took a while to set up a, a jail or a prison. So, you know, usually like, oh, you, you know, you kill some people, uh, you get hanged. Uh, you rape some people, you get hanged. You steal some horses, you get hanged. You rob a bank, you get hanged. Uh, when these towns first got going, you know, the justice system, not uh, very evolved or nuanced. A lot of outlaws would get hanged or shot in the back, maybe gunned down while they were unarmed, whatever it took to get rid of them. While their crimes, you know, have been romanticized, they weren't often beloved when they were committing them. A lot of Western outlaws have been romanticized, of course, in modern media, movies like Tombstone. But back when they were active, you know, most people just wanted them dead. The rebellious spirit of outlaws like Jesse James and Billy the Kid with their rebellious spirits, unbridled masculinity, daring and danger, sexy and print and on the movie screen later, not as appealing if they're fucking up your town and or your life. Let's briefly meet three famous Western outlaws now before we meet Helm later so we can compare him up against them. Uh, We've met these first two before in previous episodes. Outlaw Jesse James, born in Clay County, Missouri, 1847. James grew up in a Southern slave-owning family in 1864 with the Civil War in full swing. He and his brother joined a guerrilla unit that murdered dozens of Union soldiers. As an adult, he transitioned to Robin Banks, trains, and stagecoaches. James portrayed himself as a Robin Hood figure, stealing from Reconstructionists, punishing the South for being pro-slavery and giving back to poor Southerners. But that's a total myth. There was no Robin Hood. He didn't give back shit. That was propaganda pushed to sell papers by a friend of James, pro-Confederate newspaper editor in Missouri, John Newman Edwards. The, uh, this myth helped Edwards sell more papers in Missouri and it helped his buddy win local sympathy that made him harder to catch. Who wants to turn in Robin Hood? Uh, Jesse James ran with the James Younger gang for most of his criminal career. In the 12 to 15 years, he was active before being shot in the back by fellow outlaw Robert Ford. Jesse James took part in somewhere between 19 and 26 robberies, included banks, trains, and stagecoaches. His crime stretched from Mississippi to West Virginia to Minnesota. Some have estimated he helped steal around $5 million uh, in today's dollars. He was one of the few outlaws to frustrate the Pinkerton Detective Agency into giving up on catching him, an agency that built their initial fame tracking down some of the West's wildest outlaws. After Jesse and his brother Frank robbed a train at Gads Hill, Missouri, January of 1874, the Pinkertons National Detective Agency was called in to hunt him down. We've also sucked the Pinkertons before. Uh, founded in Chicago in 1850 by Alan Pinkerton, a Scottish immigrant, who served as the first full-time detective on the Windy City's police force. The private agency was experienced in capturing train robbers by the time they started tracking down James. In March of 1874, after the agency took on the case of the James gang, a Pinkerton detective searching for Jesse and Frank in Missouri wound up dead. While a Pinkerton agent who pursued the, bro- pursued the brothers, fellow gang members Cole and Robert Younger, in another part of the state, also killed. Catching the James brothers now became a personal mission for Alan Pinkerton an abolitionist who had aided slaves on the Underground Railroad, uncovered a plot to assassinate President-elect Abraham Lincoln and gathered military intelligence for the federal government during the Civil War. Shortly after midnight on January 25th, 1875, a group of Pinkerton agents acting on a bad tip that Jesse and Frank were at their mom's farm, they weren't, carried out a raid on the place. They threw incendiary devices into the farmhouse, uh, sending off an explo- or setting off an explosion that fatally wounded Jesse and Frank's eight-year-old half-brother, and causing their mom, Zarelda, to lose part of her arm. Following this raid, public support for Jesse and Frank increased, and the Missouri State Legislature even came close to passing a bill offering the men amnesty. Uh, They didn't get that amnesty, uh, but they did launch an intimidation campaign against their perceived enemies near Zarelda's farm. And in April that year, one of their mom's neighbors, a former Union militiaman who had assisted the Pinkerton agents in preparing for the raid, well, he got shot to death. Alan Pinkerton then decided to give up his hunt for Jesse and Frank James. That's some intense outlaw. When the biggest detective agency in the nation, uh, you know, is just like, all right, fuck it. 
Just let him, let him rob. Send the army after him if you want him caught. We're done. Another big Western name, of course, is Billy the Kid. Cattle rustler, gunslinger, murderer, and escape artist. Allegedly, he murdered 21 people before his 21st birthday. But his confirmed victim count, more likely around nine. He was born in New York City, 1859, as Henry McCarty. And later became known as William Bonney, a.k.a. Billy the Kid. As a child, he moved to Indiana, Kansas, and Denver before his family settled in Santa Fe. After Billy was orphaned by tuberculosis, he turned to theft as a way to make money. In 1876, he joined a horse-stealing gang in Arizona. You know there's still cattle rustlers in parts of the States? I just was reading an article about that the other day. You know, there's still uh, thousands of uh, cattle that just get rustled in various parts. People just take them. Uh, In 1876, yeah, he joined that horse-stealing gang. And then by 1877, he had his first murder charge and fled back to New Mexico Territory. Still uh, 35 years away from becoming a state. In 1878, he joins a posse called the Regulators. Regulators, mount up. By 1880, his name is plastered on newspapers across the country as a notorious outlaw and murderer. He was killed on July 14th, 1881 by Sheriff Pat Garrett, who sat in a darkened room. And when the kid entered, saw a shadowy figure and asked in Spanish, who is it? Garrett shot him in the heart. My favorite Billy the Kid outlaw tale is the shooting of a man named Joe Grant. A lot of these tales, they do get romanticized, but I like to think that some of them happened as they're written. Maybe this one did. When 1880 rolled around, Billy was already a true outlaw. He was wanted for the murder of a lawman. He also testified against a number of other bad men who now wanted him dead. He's getting by by rustling cattle with a new gang that includes some former regulators, a group calling themselves simply the Rustlers. New Mexico Territory Governor Lou Wallace, he put out wanted ads for Billy and all the papers in the Southwest and Santa Fe and Vegas, made sure everybody knew there was a $500 price on Billy's head. And on January 10th, 1880, a man named Joe Grant tried to collect that 500 bucks and it didn't work out too well for him. Billy was having a drink in Bob Hargrove Saloon in Old Fort Sumner, home today of the Billy the Kid Museum, halfway between Albuquerque and Lubbock, Texas with some friends. Wanted as he was, you know, he's still gonna pop into a saloon, grab himself some drinks. Part of the outlaw credo, it seemed, was to pop into a saloon, show your face, drink some whiskey, no matter how wanted you were. Fuck yeah, bro. That's, uh, that's outlaw life. Newcomer to the area, Joe Grant, a.k.a. Texas Red. A man described as a bounty hunter in some sources and as just kind of a general tough guy looking to make a name for himself and others. Well, he recognizes the kid, walks up to him and says, I'll kill a man quicker than you, Will, for a whiskey. Dude clearly uh, looking to establish himself as a Wild West badass. Guy had a bigger set of balls than I've got. Maybe not a great wordsmith, though. I'll kill a man quicker than you will for a whiskey. Hmm. I don't know. Sounds like his balls may have been bigger than his brain. Uh, it sounds like a sentence uttered by a man short on both brain cells and, and teeth. I'll kill a man quicker than you will for a whiskey. I don't know. Maybe he said it cooler than that. Uh, the kid steps up to him and says, that's a beauty, Joe, referring to Joe's revolver. The kid then takes the pistol from Grant's hand, spins the cylinder, checking the time to see how much ammunition uh, contains allegedly three cartridges, and this wily bastard, according to legend, purposefully moves the cylinder so that the next shot won't shoot shit, and then returns the revolver to Grant. Again, Grant not coming across as a genius here, letting the wanted man he supposedly uh, wants to kill here, uh, you know, just grab and play around with his gun. Short time later, Texas Red threatens to kill cattle baron John Chisholm, not realizing that John isn't there, and that he's talking to his brother, James Chisholm, who Billy's drinking with. Again, not a genius move. If your plan is to kill Billy the Kid and collect that reward, why are you now threatening a guy drinking with Billy? A guy who's not wanted. A guy who, if you kill him, could potentially end up getting you wanted. When Billy tells him to look for trouble elsewhere, Joe now aims his pistol at the real target, Billy himself. Uh, you know, he bragged to some others earlier that he you knows he's going to collect that bounty. Billy, not real worried about this dickhead. He just turns his back to Joe, 
continues drinking. Joe pulls the trigger. Billy hears the click of the empty chamber. Because he's a Wild West legend, full of so much yeah yeah yeah, spins around, puts a bullet through Texas Red's brains, which is probably real hard to hit because it's probably small. And then Billy walks over to the fresh corpse, looks down on it and says, Joe, I've been there too often for you. I think that's a good line. I think it's up there with Doc Holliday from Tombstones. I'll beg to differ, sir. We started a game we never got to finish. Play for blood, remember? Billy may have only been 19 years old at the time, but he'd already faced death, taken lives too often to worry about the likes of Texas Red. That's a story, at least. Pretty badass if it's true. Uh, now for an old gunfighter we have not sucked before, John Wesley Harden. Harden may have killed as many as 50 men. A lot of accounts have him killing over 40. His most famous quote was, I never killed anyone who didn't need killing. Uh, another man who is better about saying uh, witty, cold-blooded shit than Joe Texas Red Grant. Uh, Harden considered by many to be one of the, if not the most dangerous outlaws of the Wild West, at least when it came to quick draws. Billy the Kid, although possessing more name recognition, considered by many to be an amateur compared to Harden. In a way, he was Billy the Kid if Billy would have lived a lot longer. Billy died at 21. Harden started killing young as well, shooting a man down for the first time when he was just 15, but he lived until the age of 42. All his murdering, though, would take place between 1868 and 1878, and then he'd be in prison for 14 years, and he didn't last too long once he got out. Uh, Harden was born in 1853 in the state of Texas, and in Texas, he would build quite the legend. Killed between, yeah, 70, or I'm sorry, killed between 27 and 42 men. Uh, many of them, that's what most people agree on. You know, I've said 50 earlier. It's, it's tough to determine exact numbers of these guys, but uh, it seems to fall generally between 27 and 42. And many of them in Clint Eastwood, kind of high noon spaghetti western, quick draw, quick draw type showdowns. He would pa- practice his quick draw skills daily for years. He almost always had at least two guns on him, preferring to wear them in custom cross draw holsters he had sewn into his vest. The guns he carried varied over the years. Uh, he used a 38 caliber model 1877 Colt double action lightning. A pair of 41 caliber 1877 Colt DA Thunderers, a 45 Colt chambered 73 Peacemaker, and on and on. He loved his guns. He knew them well. They were the tools of his trade. And here is a summary of a short sequence of some of the crazy, uh, uh, this crazy bastard's most daring deeds. On Christmas Day in 1869, when he's just 16, he was playing poker in Tawash, Texas, tiny little lawless Texas town, nothing but a ghost town now that's actually uh, completely underwater, but under Lake Whitney since the 1950s. And he uh, argues with a man named James Bradley over a card hand. Their Christmas confrontation escalates. And then the men agree to settle the dispute in a classic Main Street high noon type of face-off. Bradley's bullet misses. Harden's is not. In fact, in the time it took Bradley to shoot wildly once, Harden shot Bradley in both the head and in the heart. Uh, just a month later, on January 20th, 1870 in Horn Hill, Limestone County, Texas. Harden reportedly killed another man in a, a gunfight after the two got into an argument about the fucking circus of all places, you know, while watching it. Would have loved to hear that argument. <laughs> Trapeze artist! Or maybe, maybe, maybe they're still out there. Uh, you know, it's like their showdown. Trapeze artist show was a heap better entertainment than that damn human cannonball fella. The hell you say? That dark cannonball fella was bursting at the gills. With entertainment, you sound like someone who prefers salted peanuts to popcorn. Carnation, I do prefer salted peanuts to popcorn. Oh, holy hell. Can we at least agree that the clown show is better than the tightrope gal? I love that tightrope gal. That's it, corn dog Bob. Draw your weapon. 
uh, less than a week after this incident, nearby Kasi, Texas, he's escorting a saloon girl home, aka sex worker, uh, when they were accosted by an armed man demanding money. Dude demanded cash from the wrong guy here. Harden threw his money on the ground and then shot the would-be thief when he bent down to pick it up. That's a pretty slick anti-mugger move. All right, give me all your fucking money. Whoa, fella. No need to draw that smoke wagon down on me. Here you go. Oh, a dag nabbit. Why'd you have to go on, toss it on the dirt like that? Then just bends down to pick it up. And I'll take that right back. Thank you kindly. Grabs the money, takes a, take a little interest. Maybe picks his pocket. Uh, a year later, Harden's arrested for killing another man. The Marshal of Waco, Texas. The only murder he was accused of that he denied. He was temporarily held in jail in the town of Marshall. Two guys then tried transporting Harden to Waco for his trial. When one of the guys rode away briefly from camp, he shot the other one uh, with a gun he he bought from a fellow prisoner in that jail cell back in Marshall and then rode off on his horse. Then according to a few sources, he soon gunned down three posse members who came to recapture him. A 15-man posse then headed out to arrest Harden, but he got the drop on them, captured two of them, stole their guns, and then fled to Kansas for a time. My God. Uh, many years later, uh, after his time in prison on August 19th, 1895, while standing at the bar uh, of the Acme Saloon in El Paso, Harden was shot in the back of the head by John Selman Sr. Not long after getting into an argument with John and pistol whipping the shit out of him in public, pistol whipping a guy. That's a good way to motivate Amanda, shoot you in the back, get some revenge. All right, now that we've had a little fun going over some other Wild West men's dastardly deeds, let's get to know Boone Helm himself, the Kentucky cannibal. And today's Time Suck Timeline, right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, 
like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Back from sponsors now. Thanks for sticking around. To Boonhelm's short and violent life, now we go. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a timesuck timeline. A uh, quick note on a lot of these dates before I start tossing them around here. Uh, many of them need an asterisk next to them. Uh, sources agree on the date of his birth and the date of his death. Just about everything else is up for debate. Uh, so the rest are approximate. That's just how it is with the Wild West, with basically almost all the stories. Uh, that now off my chest. Let's get wild. Leviathan Boontilius Helm, born January 28th, 1827 in Lincoln County, Kentucky. Or a man named Levi Boonhelm was born that day. Leviathan, though. That's a sick-ass name for a crazy cannibal outlaw. Leviathan, that guy could have some cool showdown lines. You got some guts facing me, fella. And we'll all know exactly how much guts you got right now when I spill them. Or, you know, something like that. Some kind of cool showdown line. Uh, Helm was born to parents Joseph and Nancy Wilcox Helm. Not a lot known about either one. Helm wasn't exactly a wordsmith. Never wrote about the early days of Mon Pa, but we know a little. 
We know that they were disappointed in him. Uh, according to a 1992 article in the Victoria, Canada newspaper, The Times Colonist, Boone was born into an ill-starred family. Fate was not with them. All five of his brothers eventually would apparently die violent deaths. His brother's names, include, excluding an older brother nicknamed Old Tex, not listed in any sources. We'll, we'll meet Old Tex on down the trail. When Boone was a young child, the family moved to Log Branch, Missouri, a small settlement in Monroe County. Log Branch, Missouri. Holy shit, that's a name. Very cool place, though. Uh, Log Branch was, for a brief time, the epicenter of mid-19th century American intellectualism. Now, Ralph Waldo Emerson, American philosopher who led the transcendentalist movement, the man credited with popularizing individualism, he was born and bred in Log Branch. Uh, William James, American psychologist and philosopher, widely regarded as the father of American psychology, co-founder of a psychological school of thought called functional psychology, founder of a philosophical school called Pragmatism, which I love very much, actually. Uh, he moved to Log Branch as a, as a child, later would teach there at three different universities, uh, two of which still there and still pretty prestigious. Henry David Thoreau, American philosopher, essayist, poet, naturalist, credited with popularizing transcendentalism and simple living, whose philosophy of civil disobedience would later influence Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Mahatma Gandhi. He founded Log Branch's first library and worked there for a little while. America's first coffee shop built in downtown Log Branch, a place where these uh, academic luminaries and others like Walt Whitman, Harry Beecher Stowe, and Henry James would sip lattes and talk politics, religion, self-actualization, and more. Uh, yeah, right. Now get the fuck out of here. Uh, none of those people had ever even heard of Log Branch. Log Branch was a backward shithole. It was a tiny place that was never a real town, never had a post office. Not even mentioned on the internet outside of a few references and now out of print Western magazines. Doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Even dying communities of less than like 20 people have Wikipedia pages. I don't think Log Branch probably ever produced a total of 20 people who could read. Author Emerson Howe, Boone's 19th century biographer, wrote, The, uh, the boy was brought up on the borderland between, between civilization and the savage frontier. In Roe County, Missouri. Pretty rural then, pretty rural now. Um, Monroe County is the birthplace of Mark Twain. And he is the only notable person listed on the county Wikipedia page. He was born just, only, only notable person of note. The other two, it's like, ah, you're stretching it there. Yeah, he was born uh, just eight years after Helm in Florida, Missouri. And that really is the name, Florida, Missouri. That's not confusing at all. That's like some Abbott and Costello, who's on first shit. <laughs> Where are you from? Florida. Where in Florida? Missouri. What? You from Missouri? Yep. Oh, where in Missouri are you from? Florida. And around and around they go. Uh, Florida, Missouri was a smattering of houses back in 1835. Now it's no houses. When Mark Twain was four, he and his family moved to Hannibal, Missouri and neighboring Marion County. So he really didn't even like live there that long. Uh, not a lot of exceptionally interesting happenings uh, happening in Monroe County, Missouri. It's a sleepy community. It's a sleepy community, sleepy area. Boone was a troubled child growing up there in a large, hardworking family. From an early age, he allegedly liked to drink, fight, disobey authority. Boone also had, quote, a, a lethal temper. And growing up in the country, became proficient with guns, knives, and horse riding at an early age. Awesome. Allegedly, according to an article in the January 11th, 1976 edition of the Billings Gazette, he also loved to torture younger and smaller children. Shocking that that kid would grow up to become a problem. According to Nathaniel Pitt Langford, one of the men who was part of the vigilante mob who would finally apprehend Helm in Virginia City, Montana, the guy who Mount Langford in Yellowstone Park is named after, uh, he wrote, when Helm was excited by liquor, he gave way to all the evil passions of his nature. He was an ill-tempered psychopath who liked to drink, 
raised out in the sticks to be good with gun, knife, and horse. And also his fists. Source after source says this dude loved to fight. By the time he was a teenager, he started putting on exhibition matches, wrestling and boxing, where he'd take on grown men in the area and apparently just beat their asses on the regular. That must've been so fun for these guys, not emasculating at all. What happened to your face, Pa? Your schoolmate Boonham punched me about town again. Now run along and help your mom fix dinner while I sit in the corner and cry for a heap. Uh, Boone loved to show off how tough he was, how manly. His coolest macho trick from this era was apparently to throw his Bowie knife into the ground while he was charging along on horseback. Then he'd leap down from his horse at a gallop, snatch the knife up, remount again before the horse had a chance to slow. Dude could have been a trick rider in the circus, but uh, that wasn't as much fun as whooping ass. By the time he made it to his late teens, Helm started hanging around at local taverns, getting drunk, challenging any man who'd take him up on a fight, <laughs> fighting some of them who, you know, tried to avoid him. He loved cracking skulls. Sounds like he made life hell for a lot of people before he became a murderer. He was spotted towards, uh, you know, uh, or when he was spotted towards, you know, as far as when he was walking towards the cavern, I bet you could hear just like an audible groan. Just like, oh, shit. Boonhelm's coming. We were having so much fun, too. Uh, all these beatings landed him in jail on a few occasions. But in this era, in this time, at this time, you know, or in, in this area at this time, whooping someone's ass just, uh, you know, you didn't get in that much trouble for it. You get like a night or two in jail. You get a warning from the sheriff, like, knock it off. Like, all right. He was a violent maniac. Sounds like local law enforcement was scared of him. I don't blame him. One time after dishing out a tavern beating, uh, when the sheriff showed him a warrant for his arrest, Boone refused to dismount from his horse and instead rode it into the local courthouse. There was an uproar as he burst into court, which was in session, bellowing curses and insults at the top of his lungs, demanding to know what fool of a judge put his name on the warrant. His screaming and threatening had the desired effect, and the judge rescinded the order for his arrest and waved off the charges of contempt of court. Uh, Boone had, uh, you know, earned for himself. And then just rode out, uh, uh, you know, out of court on his horse. What the hell? Hey, judge, what fuck, fuck you think you're doing? You have a warrant for me for beating Johnny Doyle's ass. Well, guess what? I have a warrant for you then. The court of Boone fucking Helm just sentenced you to a busted jaw and a fine of no less than six missing teeth. Uh, warrant? No, <laughs> no Helm, must, must be a clerical error. Uh, I've got no quarrel with you. And what, what a beautiful horse you have. Both of you, welcome to my courtroom anytime, of course. Uh, not sure if that's a tall tale or not, but that horse in the courtroom tale shows up in numerous sources. 1848, at the age of 20, Boone Helm marries 17-year-old Lucinda Browning. Sources say she was a respectable girl who thought she could tame this wild beast. She fell for a bad boy, and then she got pregnant. Oh, lucky lady. They were both pressured into marriage because of Lucinda's pregnancy, and they proceeded to live together in Log Branch for a time. They had one child, a daughter. Boone was a terrible husband and father. He was never around to care for his child. If he was home, he was drunk, he beat Lucinda, liked to keep his horse inside of the house. He sounds like a real piece of shit. Uh, this dude almost never worked. He drank, fought, stole, gambled. His parents and Lucinda's uh, parents uh, supported the couple so that she and their child wouldn't starve. Lucinda quickly grew tired of the abuse and with her parents and Helm's parents' support, divorced him in less than two years. Uh, Boone's father actually would pay for this divorce. And that divorce perfectly coincided with the California gold rush. He wanted to head out west and make his fortune in the mining towns of California. He'd soon leave and never return. Never see his daughter or uh, most of his family ever again. Sometime in between getting married and divorced, Boone may have also killed his first victim. May have shot an unknown man with a Colt revolver. Probably uh, stemmed out of another bar fight. Not sure how he got away with this one. Maybe that guy, other guy shot first or something. As I said up top in his lifetime, you know, it's estimated that Boone murdered at least 18 men. And 
would eat at least two of them, uh, probably three. As a young adult, Boone already was a murderer and already had a reputation as a quarrelsome and dangerous man. He was of a powerful build and turbulent temper, delighting in nothing so much as feats of strength, skill, and hardihood. Physically, he was described as medium-sized, hard-featured, and not intelligent-looking. I love that one old newspaper writer actually wrote that he was not intelligent-looking. He was mean, dumb, he was ugly, he was prone to extreme violence. Man, what a nightmare. Uh, too dumb, too prone to violence to be able to reason your way out of an ass-whooping or a murder from this guy. Dude sounds like a fucking ogre or a troll in a lot of, a lot of accounts. Just a beast. The bully of the worst kind. One writer wrote that he delighted in nothing so much as feats of strength, skill, and hardihood. Activities like reading and spirited debate, noticeably absent from, from descriptions. Uh, in 1850, Boone either kills for the first time or kills again. This murder, pretty heavily documented. Boone heading out to California, packs up a uh, few belongings, rides to Paris, Missouri first to call upon his cousin to come out with him. Once in Paris, uh, Helm invites his cousin named uh, Littlebury Shute to go with him, and he doesn't want to. He's probably like, again, probably like those guys at the bar, he's probably like, ah, shit, Helm's coming. Probably saw it, you know, heard him galloping up. The, and Littleberry Shoot, man, what kind of weird name is that? Name Shoot, Littleberry Shoot. The hell you say? I do say, I'm Littleberry Shoot, son of Tinkle and Twinkle Shoot, brother of Scoot and Shoot. I have a younger sister, the baby of the family, Little Toot Shoot. Uh, there are two versions of what happened next. Some versions state that initially Shoot agreed to go with him, but he was drunk at the time. Now then he sobered up and he's like, ah, fuck. <laughs> and I was, well, what did we say? California? Oh, man, I just, I was playing around. And that Boone really didn't like that. The other version is that he did want to go west, but he just didn't want to go where Helm wanted. And they just couldn't agree, got into an argument, and then Helm killed him. And he wanted to go to Texas. Helm wanted to go to California, something like that. Both versions do agree on Littlebury ended up, you know, getting killed. According to the most popular telling, the first version is correct. And one morning, mid-1850, after a hard night of drinking, Boone wakes up Littlebury out of bed, like, come on, man, let's get going. And then Littlebury's like, what? No, I was, I was fucking kidding around. And then Boone said, oh, we're going or else. And then Littlebury, uh, at that point, he should have pointed behind Helm and be like, whoa, what kind of bird's that? And then when Helm turns around to look, he's just like takes off running. Instead, he responds with, or else what? And you don't say shit like that to Boone Helm. Boone got so mad, he stabbed his cousin in the chest, stabbed him between the ribs, right into the heart, rode away in his horse. And, you know, Littlebury died pretty quickly. And then Boone fled for California alone. William Shute, Littlebury's brother, his name unfortunately was not Scootin'. He then organized a vigilante posse, begins pursuing Boone, first of many posses to hunt this man-beast. Uh, Boone, though, already around 40 miles ahead. William Shute realizes he needs more help, returns to Paris, where he purchases some faster horses, where he hires two men named Joel Moppin and Samuel Query to follow him. And then they uh, try and put out a bunch of information. They get information that Boone is hiding uh, out in a reservation in uh, Oklahoma. Now he employs this, uh, this brother of his victim, employs a native man and a deputy sheriff to go arrest Boone. And these men do find Boone hiding out in the reservation, but he's not like in a town. He's way out in the woods alone. And by the time they come upon him, he's starving, dehydrated, and out of his mind. One source says that his beloved horse, the one he'd rode into the courtroom with, the one he'd uh, kept in his own home, it's dead and tied to a tree. Boone's on the ground near it, looking haggard and completely out of his mind, trying to suck moisture out of some mud. He's babbling and skittish, and they end up hogtying him. He doesn't seem like the tough guy he'd been before. Man, you're having a... You have a rough day when you're sucking on some mud next to your dead horse. Hopefully you're not at your best then. If that's your best, oh man, you're in a bad spot. Uh, too much time out in the woods, you know, alone. The death of his horse seems to have uh, led to some sort of nervous breakdown. Uh, Boone now gets some lawyers with the last of his poor parents' money and they managed to get his trial postponed. 
Sources say Boone would bankrupt his parents for heading west. Boone's lawyers applied for a change of venue twice. Uh, the third hearing, they seek postponement on the grounds of the absence of material witnesses. They're manipulating the courts. Not a recent invention. Boone finally does appear before a judge and is convicted of murder, but not hanged. The court determines he didn't seem right in the head. Actually, the quote is, didn't seem right in his head. Ah, sure didn't. They sentenced him to be locked away in an asylum, a sanatorium. Described as uh, both those terms uh, for the rest of his life somewhere in Missouri. No sources reveal the exact location of this asylum. Uh, apparently, once in the asylum, Boone gets uh, regular meals, gets some rest. His mind steadily starts to come back to him. And then he quickly convinces his orderly that he's a model calm patient. You know, he's, uh, he rapidly recovers. He behaves perfectly. He's a gentleman for the first time in his life. Doesn't cause trouble. In the asylum, Boone's orderly, happy with his progress, soon starts to indulge him with daily walks out into the nearby wilderness. You know, what could go wrong with that? Guy who just stabbed his cousin for not wanting to ride with California with him. Let's allow him to walk around the woods, which is one chaperone. One day, Boone asked for permission to enter a willow grove. Uh, it's a little further away from the asylum. His orderly agrees. And then you know, the next day and the next day and the next day, he keeps asking to go back to this willow grove. And uh, this guy keeps agreeing and he keeps going a little further out, a little further out. But he'd come back, he's getting this guy to let his guard down further and further. And then just a few weeks after, you know, showing up in this asylum, eventually he just doesn't come back. And uh, the orderly, you know, is getting more and more used to him just walking around. He just like hangs out by the asylum, just chatting up with the buddy. And then pretty soon he's like, hey, oh shit, where, uh, where the fuck's Boone? It's been a while. It's been quite some time. Yeah, he's gone. He vanished. He took off into the woods in the spring of 1851, just leaves Missouri. That orderly didn't seem to take his job too seriously. Man, if they, if they didn't hang you back in 1851, feels like it was pretty easy to escape justice. Right? You show up in an asylum. Yeah, cool for a few weeks. And then you're just like, hey, hey, can we go walk around the woods? Come on, I'm bored. Come on, just you and me. It'll be, it'll be fun. Okay, yeah, I guess so, no problem. A week or so later, you're like, hey, can I, can I, can I just walk around alone out in the woods? It's just, I just like the woods. I'll come back. I'll come back. I'll see you in 20 minutes. No big deal. You promise not to kill anyone or run off? Nah, yeah, I promise. Totally, 100%. Okay, all right, enjoy yourself. Uh, Boone gets lost in the woods again when he escapes, but this time, uh, before he has a breakdown, he comes across a lone prospector making his way out west. This man takes pity on Boone. This man shares his food and water with Boone and then Boone repays him by bashing his fucking head flat with rock. And he takes all his shit and he heads to California. Now he has a donkey, a tent, food, rifle, mining gear, and more. Along the way, he will later claim to uh, have to murder a few folks here and there for food and money. He couldn't remember how many. That's why that number 18 he'll confess to you seems like at least 18 to me. Doesn't seem like he was a, uh, you know, similar to a modern serial killer who really kind of kept track of things, who had an M.O., who got some kind of sexual satisfaction from killing. You know, I don't, I don't think he was like keeping a, a, a journal, making log entries about his kills or, or keeping trophies, you know, putting a few of their teeth on a necklace or something. No, he was just an opportunistic killer. If you had something he wanted and the opportunity came up to kill you and get that and probably get away with killing you, well, then you got yourself killed. If you encountered a man who was alone out in the woods, ah, there's a good chance that guy got murdered. If he was hungry, there's about a 100% chance that guy got murdered. Some point deep into his journey west, doesn't sound like he uh, took any main trail. He went, uh, you know, long stretch without coming across anyone, and he runs out of food. So he kills a donkey, <laughs> makes a bunch of jerky. I don't know why that's funny to me. Uh, starts walking west with as much food as he can carry. Got a got a heap of donkey jerky now. That sounds fucking terrible. Donkey donkey journey might donkey donkey jerky might be delicious, but it doesn't it doesn't sound delicious. I don't know why it doesn't, because I don't know why that animal sounds less delicious. Than, like deer jerky is, is fantastic. Cow jerky is great. Donkey jerky, 
Sounds like a fucking punishment. You know? Do that again. You'll be sent to your room for a week and have to live on nothing but donkey jerky. Anyway, he starts getting real, real hungry after he uh, he runs out of donkey jerky. <laughs> I, bet you, I bet you're super hungry. Like, I bet you're extra starving when you've uh, you've run out of donkey jerky. Like when you've been living on pretty much nothing but donkey jerky for weeks and then you run out of that. Oh man, now you're super hungry. And he comes across another lone traveler and shoots him dead, you know, helm being helm. And then he discovers that this guy didn't have uh, any more food on him than he did. He was hoping this guy had something in his camp. And now he becomes a Kentucky cannibal. He starts a fire. He cuts into this guy, helps himself to some, some man steaks. And, uh, but it's not enough. You know, he's still, he's still too exhausted. Still to push on. He's, uh, he's tired. Doesn't know if he's gonna be able to make it to the rest of the way to California. He'll later say that he, he laid down on this, at this guy's camp, was ready to die. But then he saw, hiding in a corner of the man's tent, under some blankets, a full case of fucking Whipple! Wash down that man meat with some Whipple! Kentucky Cannibal Edition! Got some idiot's finger stuck in your throat? Choking on some silly asshole's campfire roasted asshole? Wash it down with Whipple! Kentucky Cannibal Edition! What's in it? Dynamite! Gunpowder! The tears of beta males who couldn't stay alive in the woods! And a pinch of shut the fuck up! With enough Whipple Kentucky Cannibal Edition, you can walk from Missouri to California, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house. You do not go because grandma's boring as fuck. She isn't painting gold, hooking up with saloon girls, drinking whiskey, getting in bar fights, shooting fellow tough guys down in the street, or doing anything cool. So get your soft ass out in the woods. Don't be afraid to eat anyone you meet. Fuck you, fuck your family, and drink Whipple! Uh, wait, hold on. Everything I just said is true, except the Whipple stuff. He did eat some of that guy. Uh, He did not find any Whipple, unfortunately. Uh, No, shortly after eating some of this dude, he comes across a a group of travelers and he's able to trade some weapons for a horse. And on this horse, he will ride all the way to California. It's crazy. This guy made it from Missouri to California, not following the Oregon Trail in 1851, uh, not part of a wagon train, not not having a wagon, just all by himself. This guy, he was just a murderous ghoul, a wraith in a cowboy hat. A character out of some Western horror graphic novel, just murdering, you know, anyone he can along the way, if he can get away with it, maybe eating them. His life doesn't feel real. From 1851 to 1858, Boone will live all over California. He'll never stay in one place for long, just moving from one mining camp to another. And boomtown after boomtown, he'll meet a lot of shady characters, men a lot like himself. Again, I think a tombstone. I don't know. There's just something about him. Something around the eyes. I don't know. He uh, he reminds me of me. Nope, I'm sure of it. I hate him. Uh, Helm killed several in duels when duels were so common that no one paid a bunch of attention to him. He wasn't known as a quick draw, but he did kill some guys in duels. Historians estimate Boone killed around a dozen men in various California mining towns, maybe more. Partnering up with other bandits, he robbed stagecoaches here and there, robbed miners out on trails, hid out in the hills to rob and or kill passerbys. Yeah, mo- most of his kills, it seems, were, uh, you know, sneaky kills. You know, shooting people who didn't know they were going to be in a fight with him or shooting people when they weren't looking, that kind of thing. Hung out in saloons and brothels, gambled, fought, just raised a whole bunch of hell everywhere he went. This is this is not a guy you ever wanted to cross paths with. Eventually, Boone made his way up into present-day Oregon along the Columbia River with some fellow road agents. He'd stay there for around a year, ruining more people's days, months, lives. Uh, by the fall of 1858, Boone was hanging around the Dalles, Oregon, where the local sheriff had grown tired of him and his gangs never into bullshit. Boone wanted to kill the sheriff for wanting to arrest him for constantly robbing people, getting into bar fights, et cetera. Uh, but not all his posse agreed they should kill the sheriff. 
and they voted on what to do. Not wanting to draw unnecessary attention to themselves and risk vigilante justice, the group agrees overall to leave the area without killing that sheriff. Boone's disappointed. He doesn't like the decision, but he goes along with it. He and uh, around another six men decide to head east to Camp Floyd in the Utah Territory now. Camp Floyd's about 20 miles from Salt Lake City. On the way, they think, you know, maybe they'll swing through the new boom town of Virginia City, present-day Nevada, where the Comstock load massive silver deposit has just been discovered. A lot of new, uh, you know, just getting rich folks there to rob and kill. Maybe they'll swing through Walla Walla, Washington, maybe Fort Hall, Idaho. They weren't in a real big hurry to get to Utah. And they wanted to rack up a fortune and pillage a variety of places on the way. They wanted to make sure they had plenty of money for all the women they were soon going to be spending it on. Uh, Due to some fundamental misunderstandings regarding the practice of polygamy, apparently Boone and his gang of fellow geniuses thought they were heading towards a a, a land of sex crazed, uh, some kind of orgy haven. You know, Utah women just plentiful and promiscuous, just a land of milk and honey and poop holes waiting to be loopholed. I love the one source wrote about that. According to future Montana Vigilance Committee member Nathaniel Langford, uh, Boone and his gang soon worked with members of the so-called Snake Tribe Band of Natives to attack uh, a camp of Walla Walla tribe members who owned about 4,000 horses in present-day southwest or southeast Washington, uh, just north of eastern Oregon. Boone's crew of around 10 men or so now wanted to take the horses all the way to Salt Lake City, roughly 600 miles to sell them. One Helm Party member, a man named William Groves, decided he wasn't into this plan. He rode off back to the Dallas and he double-crossed Boone and the others for reasons never made entirely clear. Sent the news of what they were up to to the chief of the Walla Walla tribe. Boone's horse-stealing plot is foiled. He gets shot at, but not hit. He and the others uh, end up stealing a few horses, but uh, just enough to kind of ride off, you know, uh, for their, enough for their personal use, but not enough to sell. Some U.S. Marshals are now going after the gang for federal uh, horse theft, but they never catch up with Boone and the others. I find it funny in the Wild West, trying to steal horses or stealing horses would often get you in more trouble with law enforcement than say uh, some random murders. Uh, One night around this time, sitting around the campfire, Boone tells his group about this uh, dude he'd eaten on the way out to California. Allegedly, he told him, many's the poor devil I've killed. And one time or another, uh, sorry, many's the poor devil I've killed at one time or another. And the time has been that I've been obliged to feed on some of them. So maybe he'd already tasted, uh, you know, more than one feller. When they uh, asked him why he did that, why he ate human flesh, he said it was because he refused to go hungry. He warned them that he would then uh, eat, hum- or he then warned them that he'd eat human flesh again if he needed to. And that had to have been a uncomfortable campfire moment. Imagine those dudes having a little sidebar later. Do you see the way he was looking at me when he told us that he would eat human flesh again? He kept staring at my chest like he was eyeballing a, a filet mignon. When you turned around, I swear a bit of drool. Dribbled off his chin when he gazed upon your, your hindquarters. We're sleeping in shifts now. I ain't turning into no Boone Burger. In October of 1858, Boone and uh, the other yeah five or so guys ended up somewhere west of the mountain, main mountain range in eastern Oregon. Sorry, there's hesitation on some of this. <laughs> the Western authors, that is one thing I, I, I alluded to it earlier, but um, Wild West authors, notoriously tall tale tellers. So, you know, and a limited number of sources. And I love Wild West stories, but I think part of the reason they're so cool is, you know, there is, it's mythology mixed with fact. And, you know, in some of the stories, it's like, you know, 15 guys headed out there and Boone killed 14 of them. And another story might be like two guys headed out and they both made it alive. Um, kind of varies. So you just try and like synthesize all the stories and be like, I think this is the most common. Uh, they seem to have been the best sources. So the, the, the number of the people he was traveling with here, I had a real hard time figuring out 
what that number actually was. Some sources would say six, some sources would say more. And some sources would do weird stuff like they they would say that he, you know, he told these guys this story that apparently like got out and spread his legend, but then that all the guys he traveled with died. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Well, if, if all the guys he traveled with died, how were any of those guys able to spread his uh, tale? So that's, that's why I've gone over it so many times, but even this time uh, for the record, I'm like, ah, a little hesitation moments. Okay, so when they reach the area of present-day Northwestern Utah, this band of however many, five, six, seven, eight, uh, they get into a fight with some tribe members, retreat into the wilderness of the Wasatch Mountains. Two of the gang are killed in this fight. The remaining members get lost uh, uh, further, uh, trusting to fortune to bring them safe into the settlements. Uh, fortune not at their, uh, on their sides. Uh, sounds like a few maybe split off uh, you know, to make it to make it out and alive to tell the story of the Kentucky cannibal. Uh, one stayed with Helm. Uh, that year, the thermometer consistently read 30 to 40 below zero up in the mountains. There was about 20 to 30 feet of snow in places, allegedly, and these idiots were not equipped with any special gear to survive these harsh conditions. This happens to Helm a lot. He'll just like, go way out in the woods. <laughs> and for a guy who spends a lot of time in the woods, he just doesn't seem to ever fucking have equipment. It's like, uh, you see, very impulsive, which makes sense for a guy who kills a lot of people. Not not a planner, Levi Boonhelm. You know, he's just like, let's go in the woods. Should we get a sleeping bag or a tent? I said we're going in the woods. Okay, okay. All right, maybe not even a horse. Now, oh fuck. All right. Uh, Chronicler later wrote the ensuing expedition across the freezing Oregon mountains, one of the most terrible ever recorded in the history of the Old West. Uh, and it wasn't just helping one of the guys; helping a few other men. They make their way to Soda Springs, uh, an area in present-day Idaho. Their horses are exhausted. They have nothing to feed them. So they kill the horses and they survive starvation by eating these horses, which did happen here and there. Uh, then a snowstorm leaves them stuck in the area for weeks. The men made a hut in a valley, ate their horses until all the meat ran out, right? They're, he's eating fucking donkey jerky earlier. Now he's living on horse steak. And when they're out of food, they, uh, they make uh, snowshoes from the hides of the horses, continue their march to Fort Hall, taking blankets, as much meat as they can carry. According to author Emerson Howe, uh, the party was now reduced to one of those awful starving marches of the wilderness, which are now and then chronicled in Western life. This meant that the weak must perish where they fall. On the third day of the journey, one man becomes snowblind, left to die. Two days later, two more drown in a river crossing. Boone and his last companion, Hal Burton. This is uh, seems agreed upon in the sources. It, it ended up being these two two guys, Hal and Boone. Uh, they leave, uh, you know, a few others behind. They try to save their own lives, right? They're pushing ahead eight days into this new leg of the journey. The last of their horse meat uh, runs out that they brought. Now they're eating whatever they can find along the way, like prickly pear cactus under the snow. Three weeks into this new leg of the journey, Boone and Burton almost reach Fort Hall. Then Burton falls victim to snow blindness and exhaustion. They find an abandoned cabin. He stays there. Boone walks ahead, reaches Fort Hall alone. But the fort was unfortunately temporarily abandoned. There was no food in it. It was a hundred miles to the next settlement. So Boone goes back to the cabin where uh, this other feller, Hal Burton is, goes inside and he says he finds Burton dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound or he kills him and then just tells others later that he shot himself. Either way, he stays behind and now he eats some of his friend. He supposedly ate one leg, then wrapped the other leg in a red flannel, threw it over his shoulder and marched east. Can you imagine seeing this motherfucker out in the forest? <laughs> like, you'd be better off running into a grizzly bear or a pack of wolves. This is crazy mountain. He must have looked so insane. You know, I doubt he's keeping himself real clean. I doubt he's, you know, he's hitting a barbershop on a regular basis, just out in the wilderness all the time. He's probably just got wild ass hair with fucking twigs and bugs in it. Crazy ass beard that makes mine look, you know, like I got a cl close shave. Just walking around with some dude's leg slung over his shoulder so he can snack on it. 
That's quite the image. Uh, as the final survivor, Boone makes it to Salt Lake City, just like he'd made it uh, to California before alone. <laughs> and this guy saw a lot of the West, right? Without roads. He's a tough son of a bitch. Uh, for the whole month of April, 1859, Boone, uh, you know, wandered to the mountains of Utah alone to, on foot to make it to Salt Lake City. A rancher, John Powell, finally found him, took pity on him, gave him clothes. And then he was the one who took him to some settlements around Salt Lake. Powell noticed that Boone carried a bag containing apparently $1,400 in coins, but did not ask him for payment for his services. Good call. That wouldn't have gone over well. Boone apparently never thanked him, abandoned Powell as soon as he reached the Mormon settlements. He must've liked Powell, right? He didn't kill him. Didn't take his shit. That was his thanks. That was a Boone thanks. Not murdering you. Powell described Boone as one of the toughest Westerners ever to lace on a pair of boots. Author Nathaniel Pitt Langford obtained an account from John Powell about his interaction with Boone. Langford's description of Helm, the main source we have for the details of his journey through the mountains. Uh, Boone continued his lawless behavior in the settlements of Salt Lake because uh, of course he did. He lived in these settlements for two or three months. He bragged about his murderous exploits and then went on a spree of excessive drinking and sex. Not everyone in the early days of Salt Lake City were religious. Oh my heck. They had outlaws, saloons, brothels. Maybe just kept it a little bit more secretive. Uh, Helm eventually joined up with a band of horse thieves in Salt Lake organized by two men named Johnson and Harrison. They planned to steal animals from the Overland Mail Company, the U.S. Army. They succeeded in running into uh, California with one or two drives of horses and mules. Some of these outlaws he ran with this time would later say that Boone killed two government-employed herders while uh, rustling with them. Boone, while still in Utah, supposedly also got hired out as, as a hitman by some local Mormons. May have killed some men in that capacity, men that they wanted out of town. Then local law enforcement, Salt Lake City, uh, it, it had been around about a dozen years at this point. wasn't totally lawless. Now they chased Boone out of town. And they put up wanted posters in the area. Uh, when Boone went into a saloon in a town listed in old newspaper articles as uh, Lodi, Utah, even though there is no Lodi, Utah anymore, must have been a short-lived campsite little gold camp town. A clerk recognized him, attempted to arrest him, and then Boone shot him in the head. Now this one man, Wrecking Ball, makes his way alone back to California. While in the Los Angeles area, a rancher named Tomlinson befriends him, helps him hide from authorities. Boone repays him by killing him and taking his shit. And then he fled to Oregon. Classic Boone. You thought he was going to thank you? You just got booned. Author Emerson Howe wrote of this murder, he showed no understanding of the feeling of gratitude, no matter what was done for him. On the way to Oregon, Boone robbed, uh, you know, more people. May have killed several more men. He just bounced around the Old West all over, just bringing nothing but death and misery and mayhem. Let's break off now from the vague details of Helm-related horror and meet a man whose story would become intertwined with his. Henry Plummer, possible future leader of the Innocents. That Montana gang Helm would write the last chapter of his life with. This guy's narrative was a bitch to put together because of wildly conflicting accounts. There's two main kind of narratives about this guy. One is that he was definitely a lawman and always a lawman. He was just a good, you know, law enforcement officer and just a good dude overall. And then there's another narrative that says, yes, he was definitely a lawman, but also really an outlaw underneath. And under the guise of the badge, you know, or under the protection of the badge, he did all this kind of, you know, heinous shit. And then, you know, the some of the accounts say that that would slander. And then, I don't know. I, I will say more accounts have him written up as an outlaw and law enforcement officer than the accounts that just portray him as a law officer. Another interesting Wild West life, for sure. On uh, the spring of 1861, Henry Plummer arrived in Lewiston, Idaho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little city I've been to many times. Home of Pop Awards, most frequented gambling establishment, the Clearwater Casino. Home of a lot of back-to-school shopping trips from my uh, old schoolboy days. According to the narrative that Plummer was a bad, bad boy, quickly got involved with some local gamblers in Lewiston, made plans to rob some successful miners, and started him a gang. Uh, Lewiston, 
barely just was getting going in the spring of 1861. It would be incorporated that year on May 13th. A gold rush had begun in the area the previous fall. Nathaniel Langford wrote of Plummer's first gang and thus originated the band of desperados, which for the succeeding two years, by their fearful atrocities, spread such terror through the Northern mines. Plummer was their acknowledged leader. They became so formidable in numbers and their deeds of blood were so frequent and daring that the mining camps were awed by them into tacit submission and witnessed without even remonstrance the perpetration of murders and robberies in their very midst. Plummer soon started uh, dividing his time between terrorizing the road between, uh, or, you know, dividing his time between Lewiston and Florence, Idaho, and just terrorizing anybody in between. Uh, he'd meet Boone and Florence in 1862. Now, William Henry Plummer, originally spelled Plumer, born in Washington County, Maine, back in 1832. Uh, dude really had to travel to make it west. He was the youngest child of a prominent pioneer family. His father, older brother, and sister's husband, all sea captains. But the youngest son, intelligent, good-looking, had a, uh, and had a slight build, had consumption, a.k.a. tuberculosis, just like Doc Holliday. Why, Johnny Ringo, we started a game we never got to finish. Play for blood, remember? All right, Lunger, let's do it. Uh, because he was a Lunger, he couldn't carry on that seagoing tradition. So in 1851, the 19-year-old, attracted by the drier climate of the West and the possibility of making a fortune in gold, he headed for California. On April 27th of that year, he sailed from New York aboard the U.S. mail ship Illinois. Passengers debarked in Panama by mule train, crossed to Panama City, aboard a giant ship described as a floating palace named the Golden Gate. At precisely midnight on May 21st, they steamed into San Francisco and Plummer's coast-to-coast trip to the gold fields took only 24 days. That is exceptional. If you remember from the Oregon Trail Suck, usually it took months, sometimes many, many months. So that mail ship could move and he happened to live in the right place. Also, you know, lived uh, near the seaport of New York City. Uh, once in San Francisco, the eager youth first took a job at a bookstore. After a year, he had saved enough money to buy a ranch and mine in Nevada County about 150 miles northeast of San Francisco. A year later, he traded some mine shares for a business in the county seat and fellow merchants who were impressed by his business integrity persuaded him to run for the position of town marshal and city manager. Since Nevada City, another town started in uh, in a gold boom, was at that time the third largest settlement in California, the job was an important one politically. An election held in May of 1856, Plummer won, and he did a good job. Uh, by all accounts, you know, he did a good job in this, in this, uh, his time here. He was not only prompt and energetic, citizens noted, but when opposed in the performance of his official duties, he became as bold and determined as a lion. Among the daring manhunts that kept him constantly in the public eye was his pursuit of Jim Webster, a murder suspect who was terrorizing two counties. Our efficient city marshal, the local newspaper crowed, found Webster and companion asleep in bed with their pistols under their heads. Their pistols were quietly removed and the two taken into custody. The future possible gang leader didn't cause trouble as a young man like Helm had done. He wore the fabled white hat before he put on the black one, if he ever put on the black one. In 1857, Plummer handily won re-election. Recognizing the colorful 24-year-old as a rising star, Democrats now chose him to run for state assembly. Considered a shoe in he seemed destined to become the youngest man sent to the new California legislature. But in a twist of fate, the Democrats argued and split, one faction launching a devastating smear campaign against the other. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, they used to attack each other then too. And then Plummer went down in a humiliating defeat. Uh, reeling from his first real setback in life, other than having consumption, I guess. Now the man who's still the city marshal becomes involved in the marital problems of John and Lucy Vetter. Got himself uh, in the middle of somebody else's marriage and it didn't work out well for him. Not overall. John was an inept gambler who not only abused his wife, but also at times abandoned her and their sickly daughter. 
Uh, desperate because he could not find housing in the overcrowded town, John heard that residents in trouble could go to Mr. Plummer for advice. After listening to John's plea, Plummer vacated his own home, allegedly, and allowed the vetters to rent it from him. So maybe he really was a very good guy at this time. Or, as some suspect, he really wanted to fuck John's wife. And probably was fucking John's wife. Uh, soon after, a passing pedestrian hears cries coming from the house, rushes to the door, sees John beating Lucy. On another occasion, a neighbor reports watching John knock Lucy to the floor and, quote, pinch her nose until she could scarcely get her breath. That's terrible and weird. Pinching her nose shut like an aggressive form of, you know, older brother abuse or something. When the observers notified Plummer of these injuries, he provided Lucy with a police card now and sent a lawyer to counsel her on divorce. John now ranted that he would kill the marshal, and one night he was seen scurrying from store to store asking to borrow a gun. Again, citizens notify Plummer, who now confronts the raving husband, somehow calms him down temporarily. But then Plummer helps to arrange to get Lucy out of town now. She's to depart on a stagecoach at 2 a.m. one night. And that night when Plummer's sitting in his house by the stove watching Lucy pack, John tiptoed up behind him, uh, you know, swung open the door, points a pistol at him. Your time has come, the gambler said, and quickly fired twice and misses. And then Plummer fires back and kills him. But then Lucy dashes out into the street crying hysterically that Plummer had killed her husband. And that's a strange reaction if he was just defending himself and defending her. So did he shoot second? Yeah, just weird on her part to her, for her to react like that if she's fleeing town to avoid her husband. A little suspicious. Uh, soon a jury concludes that a marshal who would send a lawyer to break up a marriage must be a seducer. Plummer swears he and Lucy never had an affair, but who knows? And he's found guilty, of second degree murder. A judge sentenced him to 10 years in San Quentin which opened back in 1852. During his trial, Plummer falls ill with consumption. Under uh, inadequate prison care, his condition rapidly deteriorates. And then while he lays in the prison sick ward on the verge of death, former policeman hurries to Sacramento with a petition for the governor. Henry Plummer, the document read as a young man have, having an excellent character. The protest of Plummer's innocence bore signatures of more than 100 officials, 100 officials from two counties. Governor John Weller immediately granted a pardon but instead of exonerating Plummer, he chose to cite the less controversial grounds of imminent dangers of death from consumption. Now the disgraced and ailing ex-lawman returned to Nevada City where he gradually recuperated. Then he got back into mining and he couldn't and he couldn't totally let go of his lawman ways when he did. First, he made a successful citizen's arrest of San Quentin escapee, 10-year Smith. All these guys had nicknames. And later attempted an, uh, an arrest of escapee Buckskin Bill. Buckskin Bill Riley, when Riley whipped out his Bowie knife and slashed the ex-marshal across the forehead, Plummer shot him to death. Immediately, Plummer then surrendered himself to police, locked him in a cell, called a surgeon to suture his wound. Police agreed that Plummer had acted in self-defense, but fearing that his prison record would prevent a fair trial, counseled him to leave the area, then allowed him to walk away from the jail. Now Plummer follows the gold stampede to Washington Territory, which at the time still claimed Northern Idaho before Idaho Territory formed. And at first, he continued to behave like a peace officer. Shortly after arriving in the streets of Lewiston, technically in Washington territory at that time, he dissolved a lynch mob, apparently with an eloquent address. These men may be guilty of the crime of murder, he pled, but we shall not be less guilty if we put them to death other than by due process of law. This heroic effort on behalf of law and order would uh, maybe be a turning point for Plummer, put him in bad stead with the pro-vigilante factions present in the mining camps. And here his story gets complicated. Here's when it diverges, right? Now some accounts write about him as a guy who continued to pretend to be a good guy while really being a gang leader, organizing a multitude of robberies, basically some kind of sneaky mob boss. Uh, you know, some accounts say he starts uh, this gang called the Innocents that would feature a rotating cast of roadmen that would soon include Boone Helm. 
But other accounts say he was never part of the innocence and would later hang as an innocent man swept up in a wave of vigilante justice, the victim of a lynch mob making hasty and not often good decisions when it came to one's true innocence or guilt. I don't know which account to believe. The people who say he was framed essentially say that he was always speaking out against vigilante justice, against lynch mobs, and that did not endear him to people who formed lynch mobs. I will say this dude sure got himself into a lot of situations where he ended up killing a guy. Uh, soon after, he bounced around to other mines in northern Idaho after Lewis and like Florence, where he may have linked up with Helm, uh, and also Orfino. And Orfino saloon keeper Patrick Ford ejected Plummer and some companions from Ford's Orfino dance hall. Orfino's only about 40 miles from Lewiston. And then Ford and some men followed Plummer and his friends to a horse stable, fired at them with two guns. Why did they do this? Because Plummer had stopped them from killing men they wanted to kill back in Lewiston or because Plummer and his companions were criminals, robbing miners, and they, they found out. We'll never know for sure. In return, fire, Plummer now kills Ford. Third guy he's killed, uh, at least. And the dead man's Irish compatriots then raise a mob hell-bent on lynching Plummer. He flees to the eastern side of the Bitterroot Range that runs along the border of Montana, Idaho. So many people back then had to fucking just flee from angry mobs. What a, what a weird, weird time to be alive. You know, hey, I haven't seen you. How, how things been? Ah, not bad. Let's see, past year, uh, had to flee from only two angry mobs. So a little better than the year before. Yeah, so he makes it to the border of Montana and Idaho uh, after this third instance in which he'd been forced to kill a man in order to stay alive. Now, suppose he feels too disheartened to try and rebuild his lawman career and he decides to return to Maine. He's done with the West, but he's not done with the West. He doesn't make it. He heads to Fort Benton, he makes it there. Second oldest settlement in Montana, established in 1846, 42 miles northeast of Great Falls. Uh, Fort Benton was the world's innermost port at one time, the furthest point of navigable water on the Missouri River. You could, you could technically go from on a boat from uh, Fort Benton, Montana, and you can make it all the way to New Orleans. It's about a 3,500-mile trek, and you can make it out to the Atlantic. Uh, as Plummer waits to board a steamer east, the, the agent of, of a government farm in the community of Sun River by present-day Great Falls rushes into the fort, begs for volunteers to defend his family against an anticipated native attack. Plummer, still a good guy maybe, agrees to ride back to Sun River with Agent James Vale, as did Jack Cleveland, a rowdy horse trader who, unbeknownst to Plummer, had trailed him all the way from California. Why was he trailing him? Well, because Cleveland had gotten into trouble in California and the law officer had trailed him. And that law, or a law officer had trailed him. Uh, Henry Plummer had. So weird here. So now inside the walls of a small stockade in Sun River, both Cleveland and Plummer fall desperately in love with the same woman, Electa Bryan, the delicate and pretty sister-in-law of Agent Vale. Shit's reading like a Western Pulp Fiction romance novel. Electa falls in love with Plummer. Cleveland not happy. You know, her love rekindles Plummer's dream for a lofty career on the frontier. The two enjoy an autumn courtship. Uh, Plummer promises to head to the boom town of Bannock, Montana. Gold was just struck there in 1862. And then in the spring, he'll return to marry Electa and build a life together with her. Bannock is now a pretty cool ghost town, if you get a chance. It's a state park with over 60 structures still standing. I'd love to visit. Uh, anyway, when he bids his betrothed farewell to head to Bannock, the resentful Cleveland is riding alongside Plummer. Two men make it to Bannock, bolstered by Whiskey Courage. Uh, Cleveland then tries to kill Plummer on January 14th, 1863. As Plummer sat warming himself by the fire in Bannock's Goodrich Hotel Saloon, Cle Cleveland attempts to provoke a shootout. Even after Plummer fires a warning shot into the saloon's ceiling, Cleveland will not back down. Twice he goes for his, revol his revolver, and twice before he can get off a shot, he takes a ball from Plummer's pistol. Cleveland dies of his wounds, and then following the code of justice at the mines, uh, you know, self-defense is uh, judged according to who first goes for a weapon. A minor's jury honorably acquits Plummer. So he's now killed his fourth guy. 
Then in May of 1863, these same miners elect Plummer to be the sheriff of Bannock and all surrounding mines. He's back in business. The young man who now became the law at the new mines had received a majority that far surpassed that of any other official. No man, a Sacramento Union reporter stated, stands higher in the estimation of the community than Henry Plummer. The newly elected sheriff organized a deputy network throughout the camps and triumphantly rode to Sun River for a June wedding. After he'd settled his bride into their log home at Bannock, he convinced citizens of the need for a detention facility to end the current practice of immediate hangings. He raises money to construct the first jail in what is now Montana. And Bannock would briefly be the territory's first capital city. Uh, the Union League, Bannock political group, even now votes to unanimously recommend Plummer as a deputy U.S. marshal. He won't become one, but, you know, they, they think he should be. Some miners will later recall seeing the genteel-mannered peace officer Plummer wearing an ele- elegant overcoat patrolling Bannock streets at dawn. And his supporters will say that during the final months of 1863, when a rash of crime sweeps Bannock and the surrounding area of the Alder Gulch mines, he was not the leader of the gang known as Innocence. He just got swept up in an insane hanging spree that lasted a month and eradicated 21 men suspected of, uh, suspected of belonging to the outlaw gang. Plummer, before being hanged, had publicly stated that he intended to put a stop to territorial lynchings. Was he killed by the mob? Because, you know, again, angry mob members just don't like him talking about putting an end to angry mob justice. Maybe this innocent really was innocent. Uh, In his 1890 book, Vigilante Days and Ways, author Nathaniel P. Langford, one of our sources, wrote that Plummer had previously headed an outlaw band in Lewiston for three years before coming to Montana. But other sources state that Plummer was residing in California for most of that time. And preserved documents suggest Plummer spent just three weeks in Lewiston. So, hmm. Some sources also attest that Langford and Plummer were rivals, that they really didn't like each other. That Langford was jealous of Plummer becoming Bannock Sheriff. That, uh, you know, Langford had his own aspirations, political aspirations. Or Langford and his fellow businessmen established freight companies, a sawmill, and other businesses in Bannock, and they were sick of being robbed by Plummer and his men. Who the real Plummer is is a mystery. You know who definitely was not innocent? Boone motherfucking Helm, the Kentucky cannibal, is guilty as shit of so much. Let's back up to 1862 and reconnect that cannibalistic uh, lunatic with uh, Plummer. In 1862, or I guess not reconnect, we'll reconnect with his story and then connect him with Plummer. There we go. Words are hard today. Uh, 1862, Boone arrives at the Boone town of Florence, Idaho to try his hand at gold mining. Well, kind of. He, he came there to rob miners, beat people up, maybe kill a few fellas. So less mining, more beating up miners. Settled in 1861, Florence, only 14 miles as the crow flies from my hometown of Riggins, Idaho. I used to camp in the area of what was once Florence uh, as a kid all the time. Literally have panned for gold in old ponds created by old long closed mines there. Once found a bunch of mica, uh, thought I had made my fortune. Then my mom pointed out it was only fool's gold. Some of my favorite childhood memories are of camping around Florence. No cool ghost town there, though, unfortunately. Uh, Thousands lived there in 1862. Only 250 would still be there by 1864. And today, only a few foundations, a few building foundations, and an overgrown cemetery remain. Uh, Florence allegedly became the established headquarters of Plummer's gang in 1862. Helm didn't join him in Florence, but became acquainted acquainted with their operations. Uh, Florence was isolated from other towns, isolated from the government, had no law enforcement. Great place for outlaws. The town did have a sheriff named Charlie Harper, but according to Langford, he was stained with the darkest crimes. But can we trust Langford? I think so. Most historians seem to hold him in higher esteem than Plummer. Uh, Florence was a perfect town for Plummer's gang to target minors, right? The innocents able to commit crimes apparently in broad daylight and get away with it. Langford wrote of Florence, woe to the unfortunate minor who entered the town. If it were known or believed that they were 
any treasure on his person, if not robbed on the spot or lured into a hurdy-gurdy saloon or cheated at a gambling table. He was waylaid by disguised ruffians on his return to camp and by threats and violence or when these failed by death itself. This guy's uh, writing style was so weird. These Wild West tales. <laughs> lured into a hurdy-gurdy saloon. Beware the hurdy-gurdy saloon. The roughest type of saloon. Imagine walking into a place, excuse me. <laughs> uh, are you the owner proprietor of this saloon? Is this a hurdy-gurdy saloon? Well, I'll be taking my business elsewhere then. Uh, June of 1862, now 34-year-old Boone kills a man in Florence named Dutch Fred. I feel like fucking every single person had a nickname. No one was just like Bob. <laughs> I got Dutch Fred. I got uh, the Texas Red. I got Johnny Blue. I got uh, Malcolm a Twitchy Finger. Everybody has had something extra. Uh, Dutch was apparently a, a, a man of reputation as a fighter. His friends called him Chief, so he had a couple nicknames. He was an honest man. He liked to drink and gamble. Uh, when he was drunk, apparently he liked to fight. So he sounds like a typical <laughs> boomtown, just ruffian. Man, the West, not for the weak. I feel like you're, never, you're not going to come across all these people like, oh, what did, uh, you know, uh, Dutch... Red or Dutch Fred want to do? Well, he liked to read. Uh, he enjoyed poetry. He, uh, he liked to knit. Uh, he was really into baking. Um, so now Boone, who we know also liked to drink and fight, is persuaded by one of Dutch's enemies to fight him. And instead of a fist fight, he goes straight to gun duel. A witness later said, Helm with many oaths and epithets and flourishes of his revolver challenged Fred to an immediate deadly combat. The bystanders of the saloon broke up the fight, confiscated Boone's gun. Boone apologizes and leaves, but then he returns a few hours later. Dutch Fred's still there. Boone asks the saloon keeper to return his revolver to him, promises he'll leave. Just give it back and I'll leave. And then this idiot gives him back his, well, I mean, not idiot. He's probably fucking terrified of this guy. He gives this guy <laughs> his gun and then, and then Helm immediately heads over to Dutch Fred and then just, you know, guns him down while he's sitting at a gambling table. Apparently he missed the first shot, but the second pierced Dutch's heart. Boone then looked at the crowd of witnesses and yelled, maybe some of you want more of this. No one did. Everyone stayed quiet because he was fucking crazy. And then Boone just walked away. Don't you ever put your hands on me, see? Don't, don't you ever try and manhandle a cowboy. We'll cut your goddamn pimp's heart out. You understand me, pimp? Uh, more Ike Clanton from Tombstone there. Telling Virgil Earp that he'll do as he pleases. I swear, this is, this is like, uh, the more I got into the research, the more this uh, suck made me like Tombstone. And I already love Tombstone so much. Uh, fearing some type of revenge later for shooting uh, for shooting an unarmed man that was not acceptable in the Western Code of Honor, Boone now flees Florence the next day. U.S. Marshals will be alerted to his crimes. Helm now rides a horse all the way back down to San Francisco, which is quite a ride. Holy shit, this guy spent a lot of time by himself out in the woods. Then he got uh, caught a ship back up north to Victoria, British Columbia. Not long after making it to San Francisco, he probably committed more crimes, lost history, had to run from somebody else. I don't know, maybe he uh, ate a couple motherfuckers down there or something. Had some San Francisco sourdough and cowboy leg steak semis. In Canada, he and two partners stay in Victoria for a week, uh, which just incorporated that same year, frequenting bars and brothels. The area had become a gold boom area in 1858 when the, with the Fraser Canyon gold rush. This whole thing, what a crazy place in time. All these towns popping up in gold booms all over the place, fucking maniacs like Boonhelm popping up in so many of them. How much would it suck if you were just a like an honest prospector, a nonviolent man trying to make an honest living, right? You're mining, you're moving from boomtown to boomtown, trying to, you know, support your family, following the gold rushes, and then time after time, right, right when things are going okay, Helm shows up. 
right? You're like, no, that dude's already robbed me in five other towns. Can someone please kill this guy already? It just cracks me up that a lot of these same characters, they just bounced around to all the same boom towns, right? All over the West. Uh, July of 1862, Boone and an associate rob and kill three traders on a trail near Antler Creek in the British Columbia, in British Columbia, north of Victoria. That creek was kicking out about $10,000 a day worth of gold at that time. One of the men Helm kills is Dutchie Lewin, right? Uh, arrived to Victoria in 1858. <laughs> can't be, can't be Bob again. Can't be Candace, can't be Dutchie. Dutchie Lewin had later moved north to the Caribou area to sell cigars and fresh fruit to miners. He was welcomed by the community, married the daughter of a local shopkeeper. In June of 1862, Boone uh, happened to be drinking at the Bayard Hotel in Caribou. And someone there mentioned that Dutchie Lewin was making a fortune from the Caribou Gold Rush. And Helm heard all about it. And a few days later, Dutchie leaves town with two men and Helm follows. On July 26, 1862, Lewin reaches a place called Captain Mitchell's Bridge. A man eating dinner at a stopping house near the bridge advised the group to take the North Trail because it was easier to travel than the South Trail. Boone Helm, most likely in this stopping house, overhears this conversation. When the uh, three men's bodies are found, not very long later, there was no coroner to examine them because Canada Wild West... And then the area's only constable, literally too drunk to work that day because Canada Wild West. Uh, locals call a meeting, elect Reverend Arthur Browning as the coroner for the day. <laughs> he declares a verdict of willful, willful murder because each man had a bullet through his head. So he's very good at doing, you know, uh, forensic uh, police work. You know, they're like, who's the smartest guy here? Reverend Arthur Browning. Browning, what do you think happened? He looks at him and he's got a bullet in their head. I think they were killed. Oh, what? How shocking. The rest of us couldn't put this together. Uh, everyone in town said that Boom, Boone Helm was their killer. People testified that they'd seen him nearby. One man even testified that on July 24th, Boone and uh, two partners had had robbed him. Boone now flees out into the woods, again with a fellow outlaw. When in trouble, Boone Helm loved to flee into the woods. On October 12th, uh, 1862, Boone travels down to the Fraser River and is uh, quickly, quote, reduced to the danger of a starving foot march in the wilderness. So he's starving in the woods again. That's not good for whoever he sees uh, or, you know, whoever he's with. And he's with this other fugitive. And guess what? He kills him and eats him. <laughs> I kept thinking of Red Dead Redemption 2 with this guy's story. And if you played that game, the Murphy Brood, uh, those characters supposedly based on Helm, I guess. Uh, soon afterwards, this backwood monster makes it to Victoria. He's arrested. Hearing he'd been traveling with another fugitive, the constable asks him, where's, where's his buddy? And apparently he says, do you think I'm damn fool enough to starve when I can help it? Or when I can help it? I ate him, of course. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, he later pulls some sort of JK. I was just joshing and is not charged with murder. Uh, actually, the only charges they could get for him at the time was for stealing apples from a fruit stand and refusing to pay his tab at a bar. Police Sergeant George Black wants to keep him in custody until he can inform Idaho authorities that they'd captured a fugitive wanted for killing an unarmed man in Florence. That story had made it to some U.S. Marshals, but the Marshals didn't make it to Canada fast enough to get him. Boone pled guilty to the charges for the fruit and the whiskey. His fine 50 bucks, sentenced to 30 days in prison, spends his 30 days behind bars, then gets on a steamer and heads inland to Fort Yale, British Columbia, and now a U.S. Marshal arrests him. And then that Marshal will get him all the way down uh, through a couple little shenanigans that are too kind of all, all over the place to uh, bother incorporating here uh, into Boise, Idaho. And in Boise, Boone's older brother, Tex, Tex Helm, old Tex shows up. Tex happened to be working in the mining industry in Boise. And when he finds out his bro's in jail, about to be tried for murder, he sets out on a mission to buy out all the witnesses in Florence. And he does because Wild West. When the day of Boone's trial comes and Boone is transported up to Florence, none of the witnesses show up and he is released. 
that had to have been a, a good thing to be a criminal too, with these boom towns popping up quickly and leaving and people just keep scattering and scattering. If you could delay your trial long enough, well, then there's not gonna be any witnesses. Uh, Boone's free again. Good for no one but Boone. He heads back to uh, Boise with his brother. Allegedly, Tex tells him, now, Boone, if you want to work and make an honest living, go down to Boise with me. But if you must fight and nothing else will you do, I will give you an outfit to go to Texas where you can join the Confederate armies and do something for your country. Uh, Boone tries to live in Boise and become an honest miner uh, for a couple days. And then he's like, fuck this. He tells his brother he does want to go to Texas. Tex gives him clothes, a horse, and food. And then Boone leaves Boise, but not for Texas. He heads to Montana instead and joins the innocents. In December of 1862, Boone shows up in Bannock, joins Henry Plummer's gang within a few days of uh, showing up in town. Plummer, if we believe that narrative, you know, leading the innocents. He was uh, planning robberies in Montana, just like he'd previously planned, you know, robberies in Idaho. Innocents are looting pack trains, killing pioneers. Plummer's making outlaws as deputies. And one of them is Boone, Kentucky Cannibal Helm. Every successful miner and business owner in town are targeted by these robbers, according to some accounts. One old paper reported, if one of them needed clothing, ammunition, or food, he obtained it on credit, which no one dared refuse, and settled it by threatening to shoot the person bold enough to ask for payment. (laughs) That's fun. Uh, Residents walking uh, the streets in fear every day is uh, some new act of violence or murder. But then an outlaw named John Long, he's captured by some vigilantes near Virginia City. Wild West author Henry Plummer, hater, uh, and first Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Nathaniel P. Langford on that committee. And in return for clemency, John Long implicates Plummer, Boonhelm, and others in a string of robberies and murders. Boone making quite a name for himself in Bannock in Virginia City, uh, where he's likely robbing and killing unsuspecting settlers left and right, also doing weird shit like getting drunk and riding through town on his horse late at night, shouting, quote, look out, Boonhelm is coming. Again, what a fucking weird time and place to be alive. Imagine you just laid down for bed and you hear a galloping horse, maybe someone firing their gun, and then some known murderer, some asshole, you know, is yelling, look out, Boonhelm is coming. And you don't complain. Right? You're just like, oh, this is what I have to live, live with. If you complain, you're as good as dead. It's a good thing Boonhelm didn't know about the A-hole Air Banjo Academy. I feel like, I feel like he would have loved that old time suck joke, and I feel like he would have used it to torture people. He would have made everyone else around him, their lives even more miserable, right? Middle of the night, after yelling something like, look out, Boonhelm is coming. Maybe he hops off his horse, rips out some riffs. Bitch, you didn't know I was a musician. Did you, I reckon, you fucker, listen up. Oh, you don't like that one? Let me know you don't like it, and I'll kill you. How about... Maybe just walks into the middle of a Sunday church service. That'll be enough, Pastor. Boone Helm has a tune for your congregation. I've uh, tweaked out my air banjo for this here occasion. Bang, 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 bang. Anyone upset? I'm more than happy to pistol whip you and your family until you appreciate my musical skills. Uh, Boone spent most of his time in Montana, you know, being a huge asshole, uh, tormenting folks in Virginia City, the principal settlement of the Alder Gulch mining re- uh, region. Over 10,000, uh, you know, people in cabins and tents scattered in the area, as we talked about earlier. Uh, according to one source, every third cabin in town was a saloon or brothel. The crack of the revolver was often heard above the merry notes of the violin. Street fights were frequent, and as no one knew when or where they would occur, everyone was on his guard against a random shot. God, that sounds like a stressful place to live. You know, go out and get a drink. Imagine that. You know, you're 
heading to the bar down the street from where you live and they walk in and it's just full of dudes with six shooters who will use their weapons on you if an argument escalates. You know, imagine some of those uh, being some of these other dudes being psychopaths who just want to stir up trouble, all fucked up on whiskey. Not the best place to to head out with your lady. Unless you're not afraid of a fist fight that might turn into a gunfight. No, 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 no. I was just trying to order a drink. Come on, come on. How do we get here? I just want to, I just want to have an old fashioned. Why am I in a duel? Can't we just arm wrestle? Can I just, let me just concede victory, please. Uh, stagecoach robberies happening constantly. It's anarchy. Uh, I guess the stagecoach robberies, robberies were happening the most on the route between Virginia City and Bannock. This was the Innocent's prime loot and territory. The road had streams, canyons, mountain passes, ledges, willow thickets, and valleys for them to hide in and attack stagecoaches or pack trains. One old account, uh, the robbers had their established points of rendezvous on the road and worked in concert by a system of horseback uh, tele- telegraphy uh, as unfailing as electricity. Uh, what, whenever it was known that a person with money was about to leave by coach, a private mark was made upon the vehicle, which would be recognized whenever seen at. Several ranches where the coach horses were changed. When the approach of the coach was perceived at either of these changing stations, the herder in charge mounted his horse and rode hurriedly off to drive up the horses for the next route, which were generally feeding inside of the station. Sometimes they strayed off and the coach would be delayed until they were found, but this was of infrequent occurrence. <laughs> a lot of people, not surprisingly, getting sick of all this madness. December 1863, a final robbery frustrates the citizens of Virginia City enough that they decide to really take action against the innocents. The actions of a man named George Ives was the final straw for the settlers of Virginia City and what led to the formation of the Vigilance Committee. Ives was a road agent, innocent, uh, one of those gang members. He liked to patrol the main road on horseback, threaten anyone who even looked at him the wrong way, apparently. Virginia City residents found Nicholas Tabalt's body in a field along this road. He was an innocent man, not that innocent, uh, innocent, not capitalized, who had been robbed and murdered. Just a few days later, residents spotted Ives with Tabalt's stolen mules. Allegedly, I've said Tabalt will never cause uh, anyone trouble again. On December 21st, 1863, 25 men pledged their support to each other and uh, to rid the area of crime, and they set out to capture and publicly hang Ives. This is the Vigilance Committee, right? There had been vigilante, uh, vigilante mobs previously, but not organized like this. This is some Wyatt Earp and his Immortals posse shit from, again, Tombstone. The last charge of Wyatt Earp and his Immortals. Sheriff Henry Plummer refuses to assist this mob. Why? because he was worried that the road agents would then come after him or because he hated mob vigilante justice. Uh, these 25 men set the stage for a larger Western vigilante movement to follow in other mining areas. They wanted to capture all the road agents and bring them to justice to set an example for future criminals. After executing Ives, the committee makes it their mission to identify and arrest all the road agents in the area, many of which, of course, now flee. Uh, in early January 1864, the Vigilance Committee sets out to find nine men they know are road agents. One couldn't be located, one escaped, but seven were tried. Five of the seven eventually found guilty and immediately hanged. January 10th, 1864, the supposed leader, Henry Plummer, arrested and hanged in Virginia City. Plummer hanged at 10 p.m. that night. He was tearful, and allegedly the committee did not even allow him five minutes to pray before hanging him. Along with him, the Vigilance Committee hangs three other men, including George Lane, a deputy sheriff. On January 13th, 1864, uh, the remaining road agents, you know, they're well aware now of uh, of the plot against them about some of their members being hanged. Gang member Jack Gallagher and his friends sat in a saloon drinking and Jack remarked, while we are here betting, those vigilante sons of bitches are passing sentence on us. 
Vigilance committee leaders ordered members to assemble and surround the city this night. No one is permitted to leave. Over 500 armed men apparently circled the city that night. So their uh, vigilance committee, they had some serious reinforcements now. The vigilantes were so quiet, no one realized what they were doing until morning when the townspeople woke up to see their city surrounded by armed guards. Can you imagine that? How, how is this not a fucking epic Wild West movie? Messengers sent out to towns in the Gulch to summon other vigilantes to appear and take part in the upcoming trials. I mean, they're doing a serious purge here. Party sent out to arrest Boonhelm and fellow outlaws Jack Gallagher, Frank Parrish, Hayes Lyons, and Bill Hunter. Bill managed to escape town just before the guards were stationed. On January 14th, 1864, Boone and the other innocents hanged in Virginia City. He was two weeks shy, 36 years old, when he was executed, bringing about his short life full of violence to a violent end. The Vigilance Committee had arrested Boone earlier that day. Three men closed in on him as he was standing in the street in front of the Virginia Hotel. An armed guard stood on either side of him with a third pointing a pistol at his head. Boone told him, if I had a chance or if I had guessed what you all were up to, you'd have never taken me. He told them he didn't know what they wanted with him, but that he'd, killed, he'd never killed a man in his life. I am as innocent as the babe unborn. I never killed anyone, nor robbed, nor defrauded any man. And I'm willing to swear to it on the Bible. And, then, and now, because that was a big deal at the time, they, they bring out a Bible and they make Boone kiss the Bible and swear his innocence again and again. And every time he does it uh, with a quote, perfect calmness. But luckily, this is not enough to get him, you know, uh, freed. After a few hours, Boone decides to confess. He's like, okay, they know who I am. He's ready to tell him, yes, I've killed so many guys. I've eaten a few. He tells this law officer that he killed men in Missouri and California uh, all over the U.S. West. He confesses to 18 murders, including three minors and another feller up in Canada. Said he'd murdered three victims in Salt Lake City. Said he shot Dutch Fred in Florence, Idaho. Knowing he was now for sure going to be hanged, Boone said, I have looked at death in all forms and I am not afraid to die. He was not. This is ridiculous. Around 4 p.m., Boone and four other men taken to the hangman's building, an unfinished building in the center of town. The vigilance committee used the heavy center support beam of the building to hang the men. They stood on top of dry goods boxes instead of a traditional gallows. 6,000 people come to witness their executions. The front of the building is open, giving the audience a full view. It's like a whole show. Vigilance Committee executes Boonhelm, Hayes, Frank, George, and Jack, the guys I just mentioned earlier. Each man, uh, excluding Frank Parrish, who seems to have been probably innocent, had a you know long history of crime. And these men are all charged with various serious crimes. Boonhelm was charged with being a road agent, Confederate sympathizer, public nuisance, murderer, and cannibal. My favorite charge is public nuisance. Man, was he ever. He's a walking pile of mayhem. Uh, he does not protest any of these charges in the end. When he's given a last request, he simply says, I want one more drink of whiskey. Perfect. As he stands on the box, Jack Gallagher beside him starts to weep, becomes hysterical. And according to a witness, Boonhelm looked around at his friends placed for death and told Jack to stop making such a fuss. There's no, <laughs> my God, there's no use being afraid to die. Probably never, uh, probably never lived a man more actually devoid of all sense of fear. He valued neither the life of others nor his own. He saw that the end had come and was careless about the rest. Boone actually grew impatient waiting to be executed because the executioners were delayed by some men who wanted to pray. And he, uh, witnesses say he told the executioners, for God's sake, if you're going to hang me, I want you to do it and get through with it. If not, I want you to tie up my finger for me. Because apparently he had, uh, when he got arrested, he'd injured his finger. Boone then watches George Lane jump off the box. Uh, he's supposed to be next. He calls out, there's one gone to hell. And again, according to witnesses, Boone's final words are, every man for his principles. Hurrah for Jeff Davis. 
Kick away, old fellow. My turn next. I'll be in hell with you in a minute. Let her rip. And then this crazy motherfucker jumps off the box before they could kick it. <laughs> Cold blood and tough as nails right until the very end. And just crazy. Uh, Jeff Davis, by the way, uh, everybody assumed, you know, he's talking about Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy at that time. You know, uh, the whole Confederate sympathizer thing. Uh, what principles was he talking about? Who knows? I bet that guy had a real interesting moral code if you were able to get him to talk about it. Uh, after he was hanged, he was cut down. And then when no one claimed his body, it laid in the street for hours and then finally dragged off and buried. Boone and the road agents with him buried at Boot Hill Cemetery in Virginia City. That cemetery's still there. The inscription on Boone's grave reads, Boonehelm hanged January 14th, 1864. And that will take us out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. What a truly wild-ass story. Uh, <laughs> hope it was entertaining. Uh, did the best we could with it. You know, uh, the Wild West, one of my favorite, if not my favorite period of history, so chaotic, but also, um, man, and I learned this with Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday, compared to other like, like true crime or historical biographies, man, they are tricky to put together because uh, when writers did come along, you know, the Pulp Fiction of the time, you know, they were selling these tall tales and they weren't, uh, they weren't the best investigative journalists. And they just wrote what sounded cool. And they got some details correct. I mean, they weren't just picking anybody. They weren't making people up. But it gets tricky to differentiate uh, just, you know, making shit up. In fact, and again, you know, not that many people actually wrote about this guy compared to Billy the Kid or Jesse James or some of the others. But what little details we can gleam. I mean, he just he just sounds like a, a character in so many Westerns I've seen. Like, you know, where everybody's hanging out at the saloon and they're having a good time. And then just like, uh, you know, some fucking psychopath walks in, everybody stands, you know, turns around and the whole vibe changes. Just that like, ah, oh, fuck that guy. And just that asshole, you know, pushes people out of the way as he's walking up to the bar, you know, demands a drink, insults the bartender, maybe slaps him. Nobody does anything about it. Just like the town bully, like a lot of those spaghetti Westerns with the, those Clint Eastwood movies. He just reminds me of like the stock bad guy, but like a, but a more exaggerated version with cannibalism thrown in. And it's just crazy that his whole adult life, there's no account of him like, and he mined for a while and he got a job at a saloon and just kind of, you know, uh, dated some lady. Like once he left Missouri, he was just an unabashed, just piece of shit, just nonstop for the whole rest of his life. Just everywhere he went, he just, he just stole, uh, you know, just held stagecoaches up, just, you know, mugged people. It sounds like just killed people out in the woods. And, uh, and I think when he wasn't, you know, just killing and doing that kind of stuff, he was just gambling and just being drunk and just like fighting people in part, like just, just a very chaotic life, just a very chaotic time and place. Bunch of tough people scurrying West across the American interior, you know, for the most part back when it was so wild, no railroads back then to make it across the country, only a few wagon train routes. Not everyone took those long boat ride would get it done, but most people couldn't afford that or they didn't live near a Harbor where those boats would launch from. So it didn't make any sense. Various tribes still living out in, you know, much of America as they live for hundreds of thousands of years. Gold nuggets laying at the bottom of creek and riverbeds waiting to make somebody's fortune, hiding in the mud of the banks of these creeks and rivers, laying intertwined with quartz and big veins underground. You know, just a bunch of rugged ass men like Boone Helm bouncing from town to town, camp to camp, looking to steal somebody's fortune or looking to make theirs. You know, saloons, brothels popping up quickly wherever miners found gold. So many boom towns popping up so fast, 
right? I just, I can just picture it. Maybe I just watch some of those movies, you know, my mind, just the sound of so many hammers throwing up shops and homes just as fast as they could. Whole town getting built all at the same time. It's <laughs> just timber being sawed down left and right. Main streets being shoveled and plowed somewhat flat. Just so much hustle and bustle. An area that was pure wilderness could have 5,000 people living there just a few weeks later. 10,000 within a few months. And then be completely deserted just a couple years later. All those mines, all those miners and shopkeepers, right? Everybody's taken off for the next boomtown. Such, such a chaotic time. No one's waiting for a bank or a sheriff's office to be established before opening up their businesses. Most worked all day mining, then stayed up late, drinking, gambling, paying for sex, fighting, sometimes killing. Brawls, duels, robberies, just part of the chaos. And all this wildness and this uh, human sea, uh, tough folk, some separated themselves from the masses by being tougher and wilder than most. And one of those, one of those men was Boone Helm. I can just see him walking to the, yeah, dusty old saloon, you know? Oh, don't start trouble with Boone Helm. He's always looking for a fight. The Kentucky cannibal. Thriving for years in a lawless environment. Born in Kentucky, raised in Missouri, Boone fled after murdering his cousin over a dispute about traveling to California. After being caught and serving some time in an asylum, Boone escaped California to get some gold, other people's gold. Murdered and robbed along the way to fund his journey. He'd murder and rob all over present-day California, Oregon, Washington, Utah, Idaho, Montana, British Columbia, all over the Wild West. Montana's where he spent his final years, where he joined a gang of robbers called the Innocents, perhaps led by Bannocktown Sheriff Henry Plummer. Montana was home to Alder Gulch, an area full of mining towns, rich in gold and other resources, easy targets for outlaws like Boonhelm. By the end of 1863, the residents of Bannock and Virginia City had had enough of his shit and the shit of those like him, and they formed the Vigilance Committee, a group of citizens who decided to take justice into their own hands made it their mission to identify and locate each member of the innocents and execute them to set an example to any other outlaws. And justice was finally served for Boonhelm when he was hanged a violent end for a violent man. Time now for today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Boonhelm. Born in Lincoln County, Kentucky. Grew up in the small settlement of Log Branch, Missouri. Monroe County. From a young age, he exhibited rebellious and dangerous behavior, like to drink, fight, shoot guns, cause as much chaos as possible, and he never changed. It's one thing you could you could say about Boonhelm. Man, I got, you haven't changed a bit, Boonhelm. You are still a scary piece of shit. Uh, number two, the Wild West truly was wild because most of the land was territories, not states, because towns were popping up so fast thanks to gold strikes. There was a serious lack of law enforcement. Roadmen, robbers, outlaws, murderers, prowling around the mining towns and settlements frequently springing up. Outlaw gangs springing up everywhere. One of the most notable was Henry Plummer and his gang of road agents called the Innocents. But was Plummer their leader? Eh, this episode may have left him rolling around in his grave. Number three, Boonhelm engaged in cannibalism at least two times in his life, possibly three. Confessed to his friends who had made the journey with him to Fort Hall, Idaho, that he'd eaten human meat before and that he'd do it again to avoid starvation. And then he made good on that promise and, you know, ate one of them, Hal Burton after he either died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound or when he killed him. And then it sounds like he may have eaten some of a third man in British Columbia, Canada. He was stuck in the wilderness there with another outlaw. He was spotted with him and then arrested alone. And he told authorities he'd eaten the man so he wouldn't starve. Number four, Boonhelm never feared death, not even in his final moments. As he stood on the hangman's building, facing execution, he ordered his partner, Jack Gallagher, to stop crying, demanded a drink of whiskey, uh, told the executioners to get through with it. And his final words were, every man for his principles. Hurrah for Jeff Davis. 
Kick away, old fellow. My turn next. I'll be in hell with you in a minute. Let her rip. And then just jumped off the box himself, bringing his crazy life to a crazy end. Not quite 36 years old and 6,000 people watching. Number five, new info. Uh, Boone and the fellow road agents who were killed alongside him that day were buried in Boot Hill Cemetery in Virginia City. The exact location of their bodies, though, unknown. Wooden replica headstones were placed in an approximate location in 1907. Then in the 1930s, locals removed the wooden headstones and put them in a museum. New headstones put in the cemetery, but not in the exact spots that the old headstones had been. And then the original wooden headstones are now gone forever because the museum was uh, burned down in a fire. A lot of his life has been lost to history, and now his headstone has been lost too. And uh, good riddance, I guess. Dude sounds like just about the biggest asshole you could have come across in the Wild West or uh, anywhere west of Mississippi back when he was alive. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Levi Boonhelm, the Kentucky cannibal, has been sucked. Uh, Thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Thanks to uh, Olivia Lee for the initial research this week. Uh, Thanks to Bitelixer for keeping the Time Suck app up and running. Logan, the art warlock, Keith, our creative director, creating all the merch at badmagicmerch.com and more. Uh, Thanks also to Liz the Enchantress Hernandez, who runs our Cult of the Curious Facebook private page, currently Cult of the Curious 2, along with her wonderful All-Seeing Eyes moderators, and she also helps Logan with our socials. And thanks to Beefsteak and his mod squad, keeping over 10,000 meat meat sacks happy, there we go, over on Discord. Uh, Next week, how about we suck the Menendez brothers? There's a lot of documentation on those guys. Uh, I'm sure most of you have heard of them. I remember the news coverage, but never dug much into the story when it happened. Uh, born into lives of wealth and privilege as the sons and only children of Hollywood executive Jose and homemaker Kitty Menendez. The brothers claimed they had returned home from the movies to find that their mom and dad had been assassinated in their Beverly Hills home. It was August 20th, 1989, and Lyle, 21, and Eric, 19, seemed like the perfect picture of grieving children. Almost incomprehensible when they tried to talk, tears streaming down their faces, running around shouting like their worlds had just fallen apart. Then in the months that followed, They'd seem like they were doing anything but grieving. What they were doing was spending money, buying everything from luxury cars to expensive vacations, uh, even bought a chicken wing restaurant. And police found this uh, suspicious. There would be no smoking gun in the case until six months later when a woman presented tape recordings of Eric and Lyle confessing to killing their parents in a psychiatrist session. Why would Eric and Lyle do such a thing? They already had just about everything money could buy, but maybe that was the problem, right? While on the outside, the Menendezes uh, seemed like a perfect family, they're Sons were cartwheeling through fuck-ups and relying on Jose's money to smooth it all over and protect them from consequences. When Jose finally threatened to cut him off, they hatched their murderous plot. Worst sons ever. Thanks for helping fix all my past mistakes, Dad. Oh, you're not going to fix them going forward? Well, guess you're fucking dead then. That's one version of the story. The story uh, the Menendez brothers would tell in their defense would be vastly different, incredibly shocking to the families of Kitty and Jose and the viewers of Court TV, and would lead at least some people to think that Eric and Lyle had been right to kill their parents that Jose and Kitty had secretly been abusing their sons for years, but did they? Or is that some Casey Anthony-esque bullshit? You know, I'm gonna gonna disparage my parents' name, try and save my own ass kind of bullshit. Uh, Who's telling the truth? That's what we're gonna try and figure out this next week. How does such a picture-perfect family meet such a gruesome and treacherous end? Next week on Time Suck is the Menendez Brothers. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Gonna start with a Japanese trash can update. 
from Japanese aficionado and smart sucker Erica Herrera. Erica writes, hey, Dan, space lizard and longtime listener Erica here. Well, thank you, Erica. I just finished listening to the Om uh, Shinrikyo time suck and absolutely loved it. I wanted to write in because I studied Japanese and its politics, so I knew vaguely about Om Shinrikyo and the deadly sarin attacks. First, I wanted to say you've come a long way with the Japanese pronunciation. Oh, thank God. I'll never forget the way you butchered Daimyo in the uh, Okigahara suck. That's that Japanese suicide force. But the real reason I wanted to write in is because I've been to Japan several times, lived there for about six months, and have always been baffled by its lack of trash cans. I've told all my family and friends who've never been to Japan about how it's impossible to find a trash can there. So your throwaway line about Am Shinrikyo being responsible for that really blew me away. It was such an unexpected surprise, and I'm going to tell all my friends in the Japanese community about it. Anyway, three out of five stars, wouldn't change a thing. Hail Nimrod, praiseable jangles, etc. Always look forward to my Monday afternoons to listen to the new episode. Thank you and the whole Bad Magic team for spreading so much knowledge and joy. Erica. Well, thank you, Erica. I'm glad you love little random pieces of trivia like that as well. And uh, glad I could solve a mystery for you. Also glad my Japanese pronunciation is improving a bit. Uh, definitely try. Uh, I did change my research technique a few months ago to help in that regard. Now, before I jump into the initial research that, you know, Zach or Sophie or uh, Olivia has started, I first watch a few documentaries uh, just on uh, YouTube. I try and find short summaries, generally, if I can find good ones there. I try and find short summaries, like, uh, you know, 20 to 40 minute range and watch a few of them. Uh, Simon Whistler is a YouTuber with a fantastic pronunciation. I'm jealous. He hosts Biographics, uh, Geographics, and, and a few other series on YouTube. And, and the research that his team does, I feel like is solid. And, and it gets the words floating around in my ears before I shift over to just lots and lots of reading. So uh, I'm glad that is, uh, you know, I'm showing progress. Uh, my long history of lies on the suck almost ruined the Amish and Rikyo suck for a shrewd meat sack, Robert Sheehorn. Bobbert, Bobbert writes, uh, God damn you, master sucker. I've listened to the entire catalog of Time Suck and have prided myself on not being fooled very often by your bullshittery. I just finished, finished listening to the Am Shinrikyo suck, and I have become so jaded to your fake tangents that I thought you were fucking around when you actually weren't. When Master 40 Watt Bong hit, uh, was beating the shit out of blind kids, I thought you were setting up a joke about in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Uh, what, that could have been a funny joke. I, I literally tuned out his childhood, and then I had to re-listen because I was so focused on waiting for the punchline that was inevitably just his life. Uh, I want to thank you and the entire Bad Magic Productions team. Listening to Time Suck and eventually scared to death and is we dumb helped me through one of the roughest periods of my life. At one point, I was binge listening to the back catalog for 12 hours a day just to escape my own brain, and it gave me a much-needed break from my darkness. You have brought all of us such a twisted community of curious meat sacks, and I am proud to be a part of it. If you end up reading this on the show, please give a shout-out to my friend Josh Adams. He's a loyal space lizard, and, though he and, his and through he and his wife's generosity, I believe he saved my infant son's life. I owe him a debt of gratitude that I can never repay. And for a pronunciation guide, although it seems self-explanatory, my name is she, as in her, and horn, as in the thing sticking out of a bull's head. Uh, three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing, Robert. Thank you, Robert, Bobbert, Shehorn. Interesting last name, by the way. Are there some horned ladies in the family tree? Uh, I love that the spaces would help you. Not sure if you knew Josh before or met him in one of the online communities. Uh, so many different private Facebook groups out there associated with Time Suck now. Uh, just search for Time Suck or search Cult of the Curious, uh, Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, etc. And so much comes up if you search within Facebook there, which has just been the easiest place for people to gather. Uh, so many places to have a laugh, learn something, get help, make friends, etc. And Josh, uh, yeah, thanks for helping a friend. Friends are often, you know, uh, 
more important for families in many cases. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of good families here in the cult. Uh, this kind of stuff motivates me more than anything else, right? If it was just about the research, eventually I'd get bored. If it was just about the pronunciations, <laughs> I'd fucking throw myself out a window. Uh, if it was just about the money, I would, you know, I'd lose all the passion for this. Uh, helping people have a happier life, uh, get a helping hand when they need it. It, it, it is the fucking best. Uh, Praiseable Jangles, he's been feeling left out lately when it comes to praises. He's a good boy. Uh, speaking of community, active cult member, Eric O'Claire has an announcement. Eric writes, I am the guilty party who started the Dandemic last year. I'm happy to announce that Dandemic 2 will be starting in just a few weeks. Hopefully this message can be read on the show prior to December, mainly for anyone that wasn't able to participate last year. I haven't written in regarding this yet. Just messaged you on Facebook about it. Uh, the whole thing took off much quicker than I ever thought it would. I assume most people would just roll their eyes at it and move on. But I've heard from so many people that the Dandemic was one of the best things they experienced online in a long time. Some even told me that it saved them from dark places. That's crazy, which is ironic because the majority of this year, I've been in a very dark place. A lot of people made brand new friends that they still interact with daily through that, and it makes me happy. For any new people, Dan Sember, this Dandemic is, is uh, everyone that wants to participate just changing their profile picture to the same, <laughs> the same picture of Dan for the month of December. That's it. And it's that fucking stupid mustache picture. Super simple. It's a great way to spread the plague of knowledge, and it's just fun. I've been listening since the... Uh, Aokigahara uh, suck and haven't looked back. I'm slightly sorry for the long email, but also not. Eric O'Claire. Where Eric, uh, nice to virtually meet you. Yeah, the online spectacle you started last year, super weird. But very funny. Did freak me out a bit at first. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And the mustache pick, that's a good choice. I'm a goofy looking son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> makes people laugh. And that's fun. And you know what? So have, yeah, so, so why not have some more fun? Let's do it again. I hope people have fun with it again. Uh, you know, that craziness. Why not? It's a message heard and word spread. Uh, I was spotted out in the wild recently. Sweet sucker, Brianna Manzoli. Her last name sounds delicious. Brianna Manzoli uh, sounds like a lasagna variant. I'm probably just hungry. Uh, she has a nice message writing, Hi, Master Sucker. I apologize for my grammar. I'm not an English major by any means. Well, you do great in this message. My name is Brianna. My husband, Taylor, introduced me to your comedy and Time Suck back in early 2020. We were setting up our Space Newt's nursery while listening to Time Suck from the very beginning. Not going to lie, I didn't really get into it until I went back to work after my maternity leave. I started from the beginning again and have been an avid listener of Time Suck, Scared to Death, and Is We Dumb ever since. Well, that's very nice. I used to live about five, 10 minutes from the Funny Bone in Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we frequent the area often. My husband booked the hotel since it was fairly close to the club, not realizing how close. He jokingly said, well, walking from our car, how funny would it be if Dan Cummins was staying at this hotel? Well, we ended up seeing you on three separate occasions that day. <laughs> Though the last one is the one I will probably replay in my head and try not to think and try to think of other ways it could have gone for the rest of my life. LOL. We were inside the Starbucks sitting at a table waiting for our coffee when we noticed someone with the same stature and haircut as you. Couldn't tell if it was you because you were walking towards a cheesecake factory. Yep, I had some shepherd's pies. Delicious. While still waiting for our coffee because they forgot to uh, get my husband's drink, you walked back out. We instantly realized it was you. We both panicked, decided not to say hello because you were carrying food. We didn't want to bug you. Final time we saw you was in the hotel lobby. We sat on a bench because I was feeling anxious and didn't want to go to the room quite yet. Well, you turned the corner to come into the lobby and we both basically shut down completely. We smiled and waved and beelined for the elevator. We both really wanted to stop and say hi, but our anxiety clearly said no and we didn't want to bug you. I'm grateful for your podcast and comedy. They've gotten me through some hard times. Uh, Mary helped me realize it's okay to laugh about grief. Yeah, Mary Santora, who's opened those shows. She's a great comic. I lost my first husband in 2017 to suicide. Your dark humor makes me feel less alone while also learning and laughing. 
Not sure if you'll see this email as I'm sure you get overloaded with them every day, but if you do, could you give my husband a shout out? He would probably shit his pants. Keep your loophole tight. <laughs> Brianna Benzoli. Keep your loophole tight. I like that. Uh, Brianna, yes, I can give a shout out to Taylor. Hail Nimrod, Taylor. Now shit away. And keep loving that Lucifine of yours. Also, you wouldn't have bothered me. I have noticed in the last uh, year or so being being noticed a little more. And when someone wants to say a quick hello and grab a quick pic, I, I do not mind. Sometimes I think it's better just to come say hi. And if you want to pick, just, you know, ask for a pick. Rather than sometimes I'll notice that someone keeps looking at me and then they probably just don't want to bother me. <laughs> but in my head, I'm like, okay, do, do they recognize me and not want to bother me? Or do they recognize me and are like, fuck that guy. Uh, so next time say hi, I won't bite. Thanks for coming to a show and have a great rest of, of your year, Brianna. And last one, going to end on something sweet, Adelaide Young. Love the name Adelaide, by the way. Uh, she writes, uh, hi, Suckmaster Supreme. Thank you for the amazing show in Cincinnati tonight. This is Adelaide the cunt <laughs> who bought tickets for her sister to see the show tonight. This is a reference to uh, horrible stuff I said at the show, but they got laughs all in fun. I'm a filthy bastard, as you all know. Uh, Adelaide continues, our shared misophonia aside, we both agree your Symphony of Insanity bit was one of our favorites of the night. Hannah and I have been listening to your stand-up together since Crazy with a capital F. Oh man, long time. Tonight was our uh, first time getting to see you live. Despite being a longtime stand-up fan, I'm ashamed to admit I only started listening to Time Suck this past fall when the pandemic forced me to move several hours away from my friends and family. I used to think it was weird for people to send saffy messages to media creators like this, but I get it now. Whether it was on a long drive home to see my loved ones, or just puttering around my apartment, trying not to go COVID crazy. Time suck has made me feel like I was not alone. Uh, knowing that there are other people out there who care about my curiosity and bettering yourself as a meat sack has been my personal perseverance fairy. I just moved back to Cincy this fall for a new teaching job. Congrats. But I'm all in on the suck for good. Proud to be part of the cult of curious. And if I'm going to be called, <laughs> and if I'm going to be called a cunt, at least it's a decree from the damn prophet of Nimrod himself. Keep on sucking to safe travels. Well, thank you, Adelaide. I should probably watch on the cunts. It, it's, you know, it is a fun in, in, in moments where to say it's just, it's very nice and compact as a hard consonant sound at the end. Shocking. I'm so glad you had fun. And yeah, uh, I get not feeling alone, not wanting to feel alone. Uh, you know, I get all these emails and I still have moments where I feel like an outcast. It, and it's just nice to hear from like-minded, similarly minded people. Just a nice reminder, you know, that we are not alone. It's easy to get lost in our own thoughts. Feel like no one understands us. No one knows we're going through. Uh, or that everyone else is fucking crazy. Uh, our brains are not always our friends. I am so thankful to have a community of listeners who who like to think. It's uh, very refreshing, reassuring. Doesn't mean we're all going to agree, of course not, but at least we all, you know, tend to do a fair amount of thinking to examine our lives. Uh, a lot of other people do not seem to do that or want to do that. I don't know. Maybe they're afraid of what they'll find. Uh, I sure as hell don't have all the answers, but I do try and think about how to make the world a little better for all of us. And I just feel like the more of us that are doing that, you know, obviously the, the better the world's going to get. And and even if it didn't ever get any better, I still think it's important to try, right? Because what's the alternative? Sit around, just be like, everything's fucked and nothing you can do about it. Sit around and just, you know, I don't know. Uh, I will be safe with my travels. Uh, you keep having fun with your sister, Hannah, uh, and uh, enjoy your new job. And thanks for being a teacher. And hail Nimrod, everyone. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to a Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Uh, don't shoot anyone in the saloon this week or wander off in the woods to hide from the law and kill and eat people. Just stay in town. Stay, stay inside. It's cold out in many places. You know, pour yourself a strong cup of coffee or maybe a stronger cup of whiskey. 
Put your headphones on, set down your six shooter, and just keep on sucking. Mad Magic Productions. All right, Dan, here's your water. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.